This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and I'm joined today by Darren Mooney. Hi Darren, how are you? I'm great Duncan, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's been about, I think it must be coming up to about two years since we last had you on the podcast because um, I was in Dublin at the time. I came around to your house. You very kindly uh, uh, set me up in your living room with coffee and, and croissants. That was, uh, you know, very uh, nice experience for Primitive Culture on tour. This time we're, we're recording over Skype. But the reason I wanted to get you back on is um, we were talking about Voyager then and I really wanted to come back and talk about Voyager again now because you have just got to the end of um, a very impressive undertaking uh, connected to Star Trek Voyager. Is that right? Yeah, so I have basically finished writing uh, reviews of the entire seven-season run of, of Voyager. And it kind of came as a culmination of an, uh, you know another project where I've been doing kind of reviews, gradually bits and pieces, of the entire Star Trek franchise. So I did, you know, the first season of uh, the original Star Trek, Science of the Release of Into Darkness. You know, I did the, the second season, third season, then I did a bit of The Next Generation tie into an anniversary there. And then I think for the 20th anniversary of Deep Space Nine, um, I started doing reviews of Deep Space Nine, sort of going through that episode by episode as I was going along. And as I was doing that, I kind of came up on the idea that, you know, it, it's I'm only going to do this once and it, it might be kind of fun to do it the way that I decided to do it, which in hindsight kind of worked out well, but was also really insane at the same time, which was what I figured out as I was reviewing Deep Space Nine, I would correspond and mix in the reviews of Voyager based on air dates. So I get a sense of where Star Trek was at a particular moment by watching the episodes in tandem. Now, anybody who obviously is is following Star Trek understands that uh, Voyager ran from the third season of Deep Space Nine through to the end, which got me through five seasons of Voyager. And by that point, having reached the end of five of seven seasons, I kind of figured I should press on and I should sort of finish it. And it, it, it's an interesting kind of body of work. I mean, I, I don't want to sound overly pretentious or, or kind of like ridiculous or absurd about it, but I'm, I'm actually relatively proud of it from my own point of view, uh, because it gave me a chance to really dive into uh, Voyager. Because I think that there's a tendency, and, I, and I'm going to throw my hands up and I'm going to say I'm as guilty as it, of it as anyone, but there's a tendency when talking about Voyager to be perhaps a bit 
dismissive of it. And I, and I don't even mean that in a negative way. I mean, even when people talk positively about it, because, I mean, Voyager's undergone a massive reassessment of recent years. I think when Netflix released their most popular episodes of Star Trek, the list was actually surprisingly dominated by Voyager episodes, uh, which is quite striking. Uh, but the idea is that uh, there, even when people talk affectionately about Voyager, there's a tendency to treat it as the Star Trek that you can kind of sort of switch off with. It's the, the very episodic one. It's the very neatly structured one. It's the highly formulaic one. It's the one that has a very set structure of kind of rhythms and kind of tropes that it keeps coming back to, the anomaly of the week and this lack of kind of forward momentum, which is somewhat ironic given the idea that this is nominally about a, a journey that they're taking from the, da- the Delta Quadrant back to Earth. It somehow seems like they're often kind of stuck in the same place. And this was kind of a preconception of Voyager. And I had that preconception going in, I will admit. And I think that there is some truth to it. There certainly is some truth to it. It's nowhere near as uh, forward-moving as Deep Space Nine, obviously, or even Enterprise afterwards, or arguably the next generation before. There is a sense in which you could watch um, any episode from the first three seasons of Voyager out of order, and they would make perfect sense, or any episodes from the final four seasons out of order, and they would make sense. But watching it and going into it in a bit more depth, I was quite taken and quite surprised by how anchored it was in the time in which it was produced. It was a 90s time capsule. And that was just, it was something that was, I was very glad to go through it in the kind of almost forensic detail that I did, because it kind of gave me a little prism into kind of looking back on what was a very odd cultural moment. It must be interesting as well comparing it to Deep Space Nine in that sense, because obviously Deep Space Nine uh, coming out concurrently taking a very different approach to narrative, very different approach to storytelling. I mean, I'm interested that you managed to go through it in air date order, because obviously, I mean, I watched those two series, well, not strictly speaking in air date order, because I watched them both. I don't know about you, but, you know, over here in the UK, I didn't have access to Sky TV. The way that I was um, consuming both those series was by uh, either buying or renting the latest VHS tapes. And you would, so you'd get these tapes, you get a couple of episodes at a time of each. Uh, and I can't remember whether they exactly came out in six you know kind of staggered in relation to the air dates or what but so it would be a sense of you'd, you'd get a couple of ds9 episodes and a couple of voyager episodes and that would be a lot for a few weeks or whatever but i mean it's interesting when i went back uh for the 50th anniversary in 2016 i uh w- watched through all the shows and i was initially trying to sort of do that thing of kind of dropping ds9 and voyager in where they fitted and in the end i found i couldn't do it i found what would happen is that i would watch one of them and i would want to keep going with that one uh for at least a stretch of like five six seven episodes or something and then i would kind of flip back and forth so i wasn't kind of doing a whole season at a time but i found that doing potentially one it's often even one or two episodes of one and then one or two of the other um it it really didn't suit me somehow. I found it kind of quite um, disjointed and quite, um, I don't know, it, it, a very frustrating way of consuming Star Trek somehow. So I'm, I'm kind of interested what it was like for you, because I guess for me, part of that was it, it threw up the contrast between the two shows in a way that made me particularly, and I'm a huge DS9 fan, I, I have a real soft spot for Voyager, which is something we can we can come on and, and, and talk about, um, and, you know, w- why that is and how much of that is built into ideas about nostalgia and all these sort of things. But it was Voyager that was suffering for me, often in the comparisons, that when I was jumping back and forth and back and forth, it was... Um, 
it, it didn't always compare as well when you had DS9 doing the same things um, or doing very different things, but it, you know, in the kind of same moment. And maybe partly that's, you know, DS9 was a more mature show. It always, it had that kind of two year, uh, head start in a sense. So in some ways it was pushing boundaries while Voyager was kind of just getting going. But for me, I found that I actually enjoyed Voyager a lot more if I stopped watching DS9 for a few weeks, you know, binged a load of Voyager and then kind of went back and, and, flip-flop back and forth that way. Yeah, I, I found it interesting kind of going back and forth. And you, you're right that Deep Space Nine was a much more adventurous show in terms of what it was doing. It was embracing serialization. It was grappling with the Roddenberry box. It was pushing Star Trek in terms of narrative and in terms of theme, in terms of content, uh, in ways that Voyager wasn't. Now, I do think that Voyager was ambitious in other ways, and we'll hopefully come back to kind of circle back to talk about that. And watching them in tandem was interesting for me because you do get that contrast that you mentioned. I do think that generally speaking, um, Voyager came out the worst, uh, of the two in, in these comparisons. Um, I do think that there's arguably one exception, which is going to be perhaps controversial to listeners. I think that the fourth season of Voyager is arguably much more consistent than the sixth season of Deep Space Nine, even if Deep Space Nine has much higher highs. Um, no, I mean, like that the opening arc of that sixth season is amazing, but then the sixth season of Deep Space Nine kind of wanders and kind of goes down rabbit holes and stuff like that. Whereas Voyager, ironically enough, isn't Prophet and Lace in the sixth season of DS9? Prophet and Lace and Time's Orphan to give a sense of, yeah, the, the writers talked about it, that situation where like they were casting around desperate one little ship to pick another example there. I loved one little ship. <laughs> I think that's, but I, but I, I, I think that's an episode that it has no right to succeed as well as it does in some ways. But yeah, no, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I can see that. Whereas season four of Voyager is totally solid, you know, it is one of the best seasons of Star Trek, I'd say, and, and pretty much indisputably, I would say the best season of Voyager. Yes. Uh, just on a kind of, in terms of sort of overall quality. And-, and and interesting enough, kind of like nudging the show a little bit towards kind of serialization. There's moments in the fourth season mm-hmm. where you can see a much better show struggling to get out. Like the, the idea of like the Herogen arc that runs through episodes like, you know, mes- you know, Hunter's Prey, Message in a Bottle, um, through even like episodes like, rep- not Repression, uh, Retrospect, for example, and into the Killing Game part one and part two. And even things mm-hmm. like say the 709 arc which you know isn't necessarily handled as smoothly as it might i think ronald d moore made the point and he was quite correct that like taking all the 709's implants out and putting her in a uniform a skin tight cat suit by the end of the gift was a you know a huge squandering of narrative opportunity but like her arc across that season is relatively strong as far as voyager character arcs go but what's interesting is that like watching d space nine and voyager in tandem is that you often see moments where they come so close to one another and then pull apart. So I'm thinking in particular of, say, the overlap between the fourth season of Deep Space Nine, which is one of the best seasons of Star Trek ever made, one of the most boldly ambitious, one of the seasons that throws, you know, everything that you think you know about Star Trek into a blender. It opens with this idea of war between the Klingons and the Federation, and things just escalate from there. There's a sense of impending apocalypse, and things are gradually mounting and mounting and mounting through the season. You get these wonderfully ambitious episodes, episodes like The Visitor, to pick an example, but even lighter episodes like Arman Bashir are still doing interesting things with the theoretic framework of Star Trek. And what's happening at Voyager at the same time is you have a writer's room that is still struggling, struggling to figure out the identity of the show that has been divided by Michael Pillar's departure from Voyager in the first season, prompted in part by uh, a creative disagreement over the writing credits for Generations. Pillar wanted to write 
Star Trek Generations, but was told you would have to pitch against uh, Brandon Bragg and Ronald D. Moore. To Pillar, this was seen as an insult because he was a superior to them and having to pitch against people who worked for him, he saw as not a viable professional alternative. So he left Star Trek at that point, went off, produced Legends, uh, which starred uh, Richard Dean Anderson and John DeLancey on UPN. That ended after a season, at which point he was roped back into the second season of Voyager, having left during the first season and Jerry Taylor having taken over. And in the second season of Voyager, you see that push and pull between Taylor's impulses and Pillar's impulses. Pillar wants Voyager in that second season to be ambitious and bold and striking and new and interesting. And he even talks about an, like, and again, this is fascinating when you're talking about stuff like, you know, you as a historian, but this is a podcast about history. Um, you can go back and you can see a lot of the familiar arguments, um, that we associate with modern Star Trek fandom playing out in fandom in real time in the nineties through fanzines like Cinefantastique, for example. And what happens during the second season, if you read the interviews on various episodes, is that you see writers and people working on the show using the magazine in order to advance their own narrative of the production of Voyager. So Pillar advances his argument for Voyager, which is that the show needs to become faster, it needs to become more exciting, and it needs to become more serialized. It needs to, he talks about things like average scene length. He's been watching other episodes of television, and Star Trek is paced ridiculously slow compared to other episodes of other television shows, and it needs to go faster. And then a couple of issues later, you'll get Taylor saying, actually, that's what makes Star Trek different, is that it's much more relaxing and slow, and you can get comfortable with it. So you have this push and pull that's happening in the second season. And you end up with a weird situation where Pillar is pushing for serialization with, say, the Kazon arc. But all of the ep- all the big episodes in the Kazon arc um, are written by Taylor, paradoxically, who is very much ideologically opposed to Pillar's conception of Star Trek. So you have big episodes of the season like Alliances um, and like uh, Investigations, which are meant to be the culmination of the story that Pillar thinks Voyager needs to be told, but written by somebody who very clearly doesn't believe that these are important episodes. And so you have this kind of battle for the soul of Voyager happening across the season. It ends with... Um, Pillar, and this is according to his book, uh, Fade In, uh, which is very good. Um, it is available wherever you can find it. Um, but it's a, it's a great book about writing. It's one of the great books about writing and about show running. And he talks about how basically at the end of the second season, he was, he was taken into an office and told that if he didn't leave, most of the writing staff would. Um, and so he was forced to depart. Um, basics part one and part two were Pillar's last hurrah for Voyager. And those were, by his own account, heavily rewritten after he departed. Many of the points that he made, and you can tell when you watch Basics part one versus Basics part two, Basics part two makes a point to remove virtually everything that Pillar had forced into the show. It writes out the Kazon. It writes out the character of Lon Suter, um, who Jerry Taylor in interviews said had no place on Voyager. Um, it makes it absolutely clear that Chakotay is not the father of Seska's child so that we don't have to deal with that problem. It kills off the character of Seska and basically gives the show a clean slate going forward. So while Deep Space Nine was doing this bold, ambitious thing in its fourth season, Voyager was trying, stumbling, and not quite managing to do it. And then you have, ironically enough, then the fifth season of of Voyager, uh, sorry, Deep Space Nine, which is, again, one of the best shows of Star Trek ever, and which pushed the boat out. I mean, you know, um, In Purgatory's Shadow and By Inferno's Light are just staggering in terms of, like, the scale of storytelling for a Star Trek TV show. A Call to Arms um, does something that Star Trek had never done before, and which 
when I watched it, I had no idea Star Trek could do. And while that's happening over on Voyager, you have Taylor asserting her vision of what Voyager should be, which is a much more episodic show, a much more conventional show, a much more anomaly of the week show. It's Star Trek in its most generic form. And you have that kind of contrast running through between the two of them. So it is kind of instructive to watch the two of them kind of develop side by side. It's also worth noting that, again, in Voyager's defense, um, Deep Space Nine even by its writer's own account, um, Robert Ewitt Wolf, um, and I believe also Ronald D. Moore, have described Star Trek Deep Space Nine as the red-haired stepchild, and occasionally they use a harsher word than stepchild, of the Star Trek franchise, in that they had very little direct oversight, very little direct intervention. And Iris even Bear has talked about how like one of his primary roles as producer was to act as a buffer between the demands of the franchising kind of you know rick berman and the like hopes of the writing staff and even the the actors involved as well and running interference on them and if you actually if you read the um the 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 recent kind of 50-year mission books that came out um brian fuller's account of working on voyager is very instructive because he suggests that a large part of how Voyager developed the identity that it did was directly in response to Deep Space Nine. Fuller suggests that um, Berman had difficulty working with Bear um, in terms of managing him, in terms of getting what he wanted from him. Now, by all accounts, they get on, they got on very well. And, you know, the, you know, the tendency is to exaggerate this idea of a rivalry or a trickery between them or whatever, and to kind of get that blown up in the fan press. But generally speaking, Berman found that he couldn't always impose his will on Deep Space Nine. So, by Fuller's account, when Taylor left a Voyager, Brannon Braga was put in the position of showrunner. And Braga was a writer who had interned on The Next Generation, um, who had become kind of this this wunderkind, this kind of tremendous writer, some of the, one of the greatest writers in Star Trek history, I would argue. And I know that there are some fans who are going to shake their heads very angrily at that. But I think that when, if you look at Braga's like work on the franchise, written more episodes than anybody. But those episodes, some of those episodes are terrible. And I will acknowledge that. But uh, some of those episodes are among the highlights of the franchise. And some of those episodes of Voyager as well, which we may talk about a bit later in this podcast. But Braga had no real experience showrunning. He had no real experience of working in television outside of Star Trek. And so to read the account from Fuller in The 50-Year Mission... That was why Berman sort of chose him to fill that role, because he could basically rein Braga in. And you, and you get this discussion when you read interviews with Braga. There's some great stuff on, say, Trek Core, for example, or Trek Movie. Um, and t- to be fair to Braga, he's gotten better at engaging with fans as well. He's had conversations with them online about what he wanted to do and stuff. He's always talked about what he wanted to do with Voyager. And what he wanted to do with Voyager was always more ambitious than what ended up on screen. So he talked about, say, for example, the Futurist N two-parter in the third season, which for me is a highlight of Voyager, and we'll probably come back to talking about that in a moment. But for that, he suggested that they actually strand the crew in the past for more than a two-parter. He wanted to do it for a stretch of the season, and was told, no, it's going to be a two-parter, and then they're going to be back, and it's going to be the same business as next week. And the same with Year of Hell, right? Where he wanted to, you know, he, he wanted to extend it. I mean, you, it, it's true. I mean, in some ways, as much as we see Voyager as kind of playing it safe, compared to Deep Space Nine, obviously, and, and having that sense of kind of next-gen light, that there you did have someone who was was trying to sort of push the envelope and of course with Enterprise he eventually did get his wish in a sense in that he got to do that season long arc in the third season um, and y- you know I think that was kind of hit and miss to some extent but for my money that was the most interesting season of Enterprise because it was the one where it did definitely sort of try to do something new and I think in some ways when people say that Voyager 
squandered its potential or that, you know, it was a series that had this amazing idea. Um, and, you know, it could have been almost the kind of, uh, rebooted Battlestar Galactica of the Star Trek franchise in a sense. You know, you had this, this real potential in this idea of this ship lost on the far side of the galaxy. Uh, and yet somehow it managed to become sort of this cozy, uh, safe, reliable as you say, kind of slightly generic um, Star Trek show, that there was always this, that there is this sort of hint of the show that might have been. And every so often, I suppose, the show does fear slightly in that direction. So we didn't get the Year of Hell uh, year-long arc or whatever it was Braga was originally uh, looking for, but we did get those two episodes. And I think for a lot of fans, those two episodes give a sort of glimpse of a version of Voyager that might have been. Yeah, and I mean, to, to be absolutely fair to, to Braga, first of all, I think you're entirely right, he did finally get to do his Year of Hell with the third season of Voyager. And there's, it's almost like, that's almost the happy ending of the Bran and Braga Star Trek story, is that like, finally, he gets to do the story that he wanted to do in his first year as showrunner. Um, and actually, like, to be honest, and to give Voyager credit where credit is due, because it, it, again, it, it doesn't always get the credit that it deserves. And I mean, people, and I include myself in this, people can be very, very harsh about Voyager. Um, I do think that it deserves credit for a number of things. One of the most interesting things that Braga does when he takes over, and I, I wonder if this is in part in response to the fact that realizing that he's not going to be able to induce, introduce things like serialization, uh, but he pushes Star Trek in a direction that is markedly different from what Star Trek had done before. Now, obviously, this is aided and kind of, you know, made possible by advances in computer-generated imagery technology around the same time, but he starts pushing Star Trek Voyager towards spectacle. It's the first time at which, like, Star Trek itself, on television in particular... Uh, really becomes about spectacle and about event storytelling. Now, you could argue it overlaps with, say, the Dominion War on Deep Space Nine, but even the Dominion War on Deep Space Nine, you know, is more about long-form storytelling. They spend large portions of the Dominion War quite isolated from the war, on the edge of the war, you know, dealing with the consequences and the trauma of it. Things like Nog losing a leg and, and moving into the Hollis Suite, which is arguably, you know, as effective as any of the, you know, battle for the Jintaka system that happens in the sixth or seventh season. But, like, with... Braga, what you get with Voyager is that once he seems to realize he can't push it towards serialization, he pushes it towards these big, bombastic, kind of special effects-driven sort of epics. I mean, you look at things like the Scorpion uh, two-parter, which bridges the third and fourth season. That is kind of like crowd-pleasing crowd pleasing spectacle at its best, uh, to be absolutely honest. So you have, you know, obviously the introduction of Species 8472, which are one of the first entirely computer-generated aliens on Star Trek. It's notable that Braga had written, I believe, one of the first uh, in Macrocosm uh, earlier in the season as a kind of a test run for that. But you have things like Voyager introduced the idea of doing first of all those big mid-season two-parters like the you know we mentioned year of hell we mentioned the killing game um doing television movies like the killing game part one and part two aired back to back as an event on upn originally and then dark frontier was considered as a television movie later on and i mean even if you look at say standalone episodes like the 100th episode of, of voyager which is uh, timeless um or even say if you want to pick dragon's teeth in the sixth season there's a sense of like pushing star trek towards a mode of storytelling which is markedly different from what Star Trek The Next Generation was attempting and what was physically possible to do on the original Star Trek. I mean, my favorite story, one of my favorite production stories about the original Star Trek is that the only real space battle that you see in the original Star Trek is in the land of Troyes, where the Enterprise attacks a Klingon uh, warship. But when you read the production accounts of that, you understand why that was the only battle, because the firing of two torpedoes back and forth apparently took four weeks of special effects work um, <laughs> back in the 60s, which is which is understandable. Um, whereas now, whereas when Voyager was on the air, 
computer generated animation was getting a bit easier to do and you had a computer rendered model of Voyager that you could blow up and again we'll probably come back to talking about Bran and Braga blowing up Voyager as a recurring motif but it did kind of it it stretched the boundaries of what you could do with an episode of Star Trek I also think that you know there's some particularly interesting ideas that Voyager did with regards to the, we talked about generic Star Trek um, and the idea that like Voyager did stuff that I would argue even the next generation wasn't capable of doing with Star Trek by embracing this generic identity. I, I agree with a lot of people that it was a squandered opportunity. I think that as you're right, you know, you're right to describe it as a Battlestar Galactica premise, you know, a crew, two, two crews stranded on the opposite, the opposite side of the galaxy, trying to get home and forced to work together in hostile terrain is a great premise. And Voyager doesn't really do anything with that. Uh, but, instead sort of embraces this generic week on week it's regular star trek time approach to kind of like making a star trek show but that does give the show the opportunity to tell stories that i don't think other star trek shows would have been capable of doing it's notable that around about the time that braga becomes ascendant and the writing staff you start seeing episodes which don't really feature the voyager crew at all and are more about the idea of the voyager crew i'm thinking for example of distant origin in the third season uh, which is an episode where the, the crew are treated as a myth and legend in the delta quadrant i'm thinking of living witness in the fourth season where the you know the only character who appears is a copy of the emh a backup copy of the emh and the rest of it is just a recreation of the voyager crew journey i'm thinking of like course oblivion in the fifth season which is an entire episode spent with copies of the voyager crew in which like i think harry kim and seven of nine are the only actual crew members to appear and they only appear in like a brief closing scene at the end of the episode and this allows kind of like voyager to play with the idea of star trek in a way that is distinct from um say deep space nine because the show keeps coming back to this idea of the Voyager crew is a myth as a story. And again, I suspect that's the influence of Joe Maneski uh, in the writer's room, who is the writer of Masks, one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever made. Uh, but is also, um, <laughs> but he, he, he's responsible for episodes like, say, False Prophets, which is not a great episode of Star Trek, but which closes with the idea of like Voyager being embraced as the sky spirits. Muse, for example, which is an episode where Torres basically ends up stranded on a planet inspiring an entire mythology around the Voyager crew. Blink of an eye would be another one uh, kind of along those lines. Definitely this sort of sense of the, the the myth of Voyager. And in a way, I wonder if that kind of almost comes to stand in for something in terms of this kind of... I was going to sound a little bit harsh again, and I, I do want us to sort of celebrate Voyager as well as to criticise it, but the, the sense of a kind of failure of continuity somehow in Voyager, which certainly is a charge that is often laid against it, particularly when compared with DS9. I do sort of wonder whether this idea of the myth of Voyager is almost um, the show kind of tr trying to it's kind of a case of telling rather than showing somehow. Do you know what I mean? We don't ever really get this sense of Voyager's situation in the kind of nitty gritty of the geopolitics of the Delta Quadrant. All we get are these occasional references to the idea that they've left this impression or they've acquired this kind of reputation or that, or that that reputation precedes them. I mean, they inspire con artists to pick an example. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the ones I'm thinking of. Yeah, exactly. But what we don't get really is a sense of what is their kind of real interaction uh, with that area of space on a kind of ongoing basis? Obviously, we get it within individual episodes. And interestingly, I mean, I think those first couple of seasons of Voyager, although I don't think it always lands, and one of the reasons for that may be, as you say, that, you know, you had episodes that were being sort of conceived by one person and written by someone else and this kind of push and pull going on. But there are at least repeated um gestures at that and kind of attempts to engage with that. And actually something like, I mean, 
we could come on and talk about the episode Alliances, because I know that's an episode that uh, you have very uh, <laughs> serious feelings. criticisms yeah. of, to strong feelings about, to put it mildly. I mean, but I actually think that episode, aside from some of those slightly dubious uh, political elements, has some of the kind of intriguing aspects of those kind of early seasons of Voyager that people often accuse the show of not doing. I mean, it does have, for example, genuine conflict between the Marquis and the Federation crew. And I was kind of surprised. I always imagined that episode was back in the first season. It's actually kind of, um, you know, some way into the second season. So they have kind of carried that that forward in a sense. It does have this sort of um, attempt to engage with this question, which does come up again and again in Voyager of, you know, do we... Um, do we compromise on the kind of Star Trek? Do, do we go DS9? Do we do we kind of go dark? Do we go grey? And one of the things I loved about your review, actually, of that episode was you said, basically, there's the, it seems to be this battle where essentially Janeway is voicing from the beginning of the episode on um, unwillingness to go along with the plot of the episode, in the, in a sense, in that literally in the plot of the episode, you know, it's called Alliances, is going to be all about this kind of process um, and that they're kind of almost playing out this debate in the writer's room about whether what kind of show they want to be writing. Um, and Janeway is very much putting forward this idea of, you know, traditional Federation values, traditional Star Trek. And ends up proven entirely correct by the end of the episode. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> she spends the entire episode going, yep, no, not going to compromise. <laughs> and everyone's all like, maybe you should compromise. And then at the end, it goes spectacularly wrong in a homage to The Godfather Part 3. And she's like, I told you we should never have compromised. And everyone's like, fine, fair yeah. point. She does get a great speech, though. I always quite like that speech. But I mean, you know, it's it, it, it's kind of an interesting one. But at the same time, the show does, and this is something that Star Trek, I think, often does, is that it kind of pushes in a certain direction and then pulls back. But that episode, it does kind of, it at least gestures again in that direction of sort of somewhere that, that Voyager as a show might go. And then, it, you know, you're right, it kind of ultimately decides not to go there. And it's an interesting parallel, I suppose, with the much later episode. There's that episode, um, The Void which has a very sort of similar feeling in some ways in that there is this sense of like, you know, are they going to compromise? What are they going to do? How are they going to get out of this? And Janeway's determined they're going to stick to their principles and that's what's going to get them out. But I feel in that episode, it maybe works better because it sells her her kind of idealism. It doesn't sort of feel tacked on. There's, there's something about, I think, the pacing of alliances. I actually think the early section of alliances works quite well. It's quite dramatic. With it's the funerals, like the, the premise is really effective and the idea that the crew is suffering and that they're under pressure and that things are tense and that there are consequences to everything exactly. that we've seen leading yeah. up to this point. That, that stuff is really, really good. And then, like, the Trabe arrive and the whole bundle of issues <laughs> that come with the Trabe and with Janeway's reaction to the Trabe and then Janeway's vindication uh, when it turns out that, no, it turns out you can't trust anybody, uh, but that's okay because you're awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I have issues with alliances. I think you're right. The, the point where the Trabe arrive is where the episode slightly goes off the rails in some ways because it doesn't quite know really what which side of this debate it's meant to be on what it's really trying to say you know and there is this sort of weird sense where people are sort of just taking sides almost and, and i think that does sometimes happen in voyager that like there's there's required to be a debate about something and therefore people almost take sides quite arbitrarily you spin the you spin the wheel around the table and it's like well paris yeah. is going to object this week or yeah. kim is going to have a strong <laughs> moral stance this week yeah and you also of course have this problem i think with chakotay that actually one of the other things I quite liked about Alliance is the first couple of scenes of, of, of that episode, Chakotay is pushing a little bit harder than usual. I feel like we don't see it again until Scorpion. Scorpion, we have this moment and it's represented as a real kind of crisis for Janeway that Chakotay, and she says, you're very quiet. He doesn't even 
uh, it, it's not kind of, it's, it's not like he's beating his fists on the table or anything, but she knows she's lost him. And there are these occasional moments where, because he's so loyal and so kind of, um, you know, so much not the mucky first officer kind of with divided loyalties or with kind of, um, a different agenda or whatever. He, they, they went to such a great extent to make Chakotay probably the most, um, sort of loyal, the, the, the first officer who's kind of closest to their captain in terms of supporting every decision that's made and so on. But you do occasionally get these moments where Chakotay and Jane were slightly, ever so slightly at odds. And I think that's one of the interesting things, uh, in alliances is there's a little bit of edge to Chakotay. And I think, um, you know, going back and looking at something like Caretaker, even Chakotay and Caretaker has a little bit of an edge to him. I sometimes wonder whether people always say, you know, Robert Beltram was doing a great job, but the, the writing kind of failed Chakotay. And I think to a large extent, that's probably true. But I also think, you know, maybe he stopped playing that kind of, I mean, partly he wasn't being given it, but in some ways, I wonder whether there's a way that he could have, um, and it's not, I'm, I'm not really blaming him, but you, you know, that character, even within those stories could have been presented with a little bit more of that edge somehow. And, th- and they basically just shaved all of that off him. And I think in Alliances, you can even see it within the episode that he kind of gets that one scene at the beginning where he's pushing a little bit hard. And then after that, he just falls straight back into place. It's almost like a kind of microcosm of, I suppose, what happens in Caretaker, where you've got him quite tough and quite kind of uh, antagonistic. And then <laughs> by the end of the episode, you know, yeah. drops on the Starfleet uniform and is back into kind of, yes, ma'am, you, you know, kind of uh, mode almost. And I suppose that's, you know, again, is is arguably one of the sort of missed opportunities of Voyager on a whole is that they didn't that they didn't know how to manage that relationship in a way. I mean, actually, Cisco and Kira uh, in the early seasons of DS9 had probably more conflict in their relationship and more antagonism, despite the fact that, you know, she ultimately, uh, you know, he's the emissary. He's got this kind of enormous, uh, you know, spiritual power over her in a sense. But they're still not always agreeing about things. And there's a kind of slightly spiky relationship there. Whereas Janeway and Chakotay, who, who really could have had a bit more of that, the tendency was always to go for this sense of kind of loyalty and closeness and will they, won't they romance. Um, and I think in some ways that did slightly undersell that potential drama because, I mean, if you go back to the original series, you, you know, if Kirk, Spock and McCoy w- were all as pally as Janeway and Chakotay, uh, we, you know, that show wouldn't have worked. Do you know what I mean? It, it did rely to a certain extent on the needling each other, especially McCoy and Spock, you know, really kind of, um, getting at each other, you know, having different perspectives, having different kind of approaches to things. Um, and I don't know. So that's, again, I mean, I get there are issues uh, with alliances, but I actually think that episode does some things right uh, and sort of offers a glimpse, a kind of tantalising glimpse in some ways of the show that Voyager might have been. Um, and, and in those early years, I think it was trying to be. And I think there's kind of an interesting question. A lot of people say, Oh, I only liked Voyager after seven and nine came on board. You know, that was, and, and I, and I can accept that season four of Voyager is probably, as I say, the high point. But I actually, whenever I go back, and maybe this is partly nostalgia for my own kind of memories of watching the show as a kid and, and, and so on growing up with it. I quite like those 
early years because I think you can see now and then these little kind of glints of um, the, a show that's finding itself and it's kind of testing things and pushing in different directions and the characters are not all quite as nicey-nice as they kind of ended up being. Even someone like Neelix in those early episodes oh, can yes. be a bit of a jerk. He can have a bit of an edge. He can, you know, he's not this kind of lovable uncle character. That he eventually um, becomes. Yeah. That he eventually becomes. There's there's a little bit more to them. And, you know, Paris. I mean, look at Paris in Caretaker. Well, even in Ex Post Facto, where he's sent down, he's sent down on a mission and yeah. ends up having, like, it's, re- it's revealed that he didn't <laughs> do the murder at the core of, like, Ex Post Facto. But the episode leaves it pretty clear that he was sent down on a diplomatic mission by Janeway and still had an affair with like their ambassador uh, which yeah. is you know like I mean that's not a good Starfleet thing to do and again you get a sense that there was a massive push and pull with Taylor and Pillar over the character of Paris as well Pillar being like let's make Paris as scummy as possible whereas mm-hmm. Taylor's like we can't really do that uh, particularly given his middle name is Eugene uh, which has a yeah. certain connotation in the history of the franchise although making him a bit of a horn dog probably fits with that he probably might have been quite happy to go down and have an affair with the you- you know, with the ambassador. But yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I, since we're talking about caretaker, maybe we should go back and, uh, you know, kind of go back right to the beginning. Cause the other reason I wanted to, uh, have you on to talk about Voyager right now is 2020 is going to be the 25th anniversary, big anniversary year for Voyager at the, uh, destination Star Trek convention. Um, uh, in October, they announced the kind of the big, uh, sort of theme of next year's convention. Same as last year's convention was all about DS9. Next year's convention is all about Voyager. They're building a Voyager bridge. They're getting they will so far they've booked at least Kate Mulgrew, Roxanne Dawson and, and uh Jerry Ryan. And I'm pretty sure they're gonna at least try to book the rest of them, basically. And it, it certainly puts it into perspective for me now going back uh and watching um you know, going back to Caretaker and remembering, you know, what it was like seeing that show for the first time, there was enormous excitement and anticipation for Voyager. I think, I mean, I watched Caretaker for the first time in my school, uh, my biology teacher's uh, classroom. He'd managed to get hold of a, a videotape and for anyone who's interested in Star Trek came and, and put it on, you know, one of the projectors in the classroom, basically, and we watched it on the whiteboard in the classroom. And everyone was absolutely uh, enthralled and, and thrilled by this new Star Trek. And it's a pretty, you know, I think it's a great pilot episode. Certainly the the first half hour or so of that episode, absolutely, you know, really fast paced, really action packed. Um, You know, interestingly, it opens with basically uh, a Star Wars ripoff. A Star Wars crawl. Yeah. No, but not just the crawl, but then the Star Destroyer coming into view. uh, You you know, it's almost the same shot. And the rebels, the pesky rebel ship. Exactly. I mean, you know, most blatant kind of Star Wars uh, ripoff. And, And you could say in some ways, Voyager was, you know, going for that kind of action adventure compared to Deep Space Nine, which, you know, it was a bit more contemplative, was a bit more kind of grown up and so on. It was really going for that kind of action adventure um, mode. And it did have an enormous amount of excitement about it. So for me, you know, I mean, last time you were on the show, we were talking about nostalgia within Voyager and the way that, say, later seasons of Voyager keep harking back to earlier seasons and the way the show just keeps sort of almost going round in circles one way or another. Um but for me, it's also a show that is hard to detach from my own nostalgia for being that age and seeing these episodes for the first time and kind of being sucked into it and sucked into this kind of sense of the huge possibilities that were opened up. And I suppose in that first season of Voyager, you know, they really did have a blank slate. I mean, it's a little bit like you could say with Discovery going into the far future, you know, some people 
a bit cynical about that. Other people are very excited about it. Whatever way you look at it, they have kind of given themselves a bit of a blank slate in terms of storytelling. And equally, Voyager was very much, it felt like they were doing that. We, we really didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what it was going to be from week to week. Um, and it's a shame that as time went on, the show became, you know, one of the criticisms that might be leveled at it is it became quite predictable. It became quite repetitive. It sort of lost a lot of those elements. Um, well, I'm kind of curious, you know, for you, obviously you've gone back uh, and been, you know, re-watching a lot of these episodes recently, but what was your sort of first encounter? What was your first contact uh, with Voyager like back in the day? Did you, were you tuning in from day one and watching those episodes as they were originally, uh, you know, either being broadcast or being stuck on videotapes at Blockbuster or however you were were um, absorbing it in those days? Not really, actually, because I do remember um, when Voyager came out, I was actually living in Ghana in West Africa, which which didn't necessarily have sort of access to that level of infrastructure. Probably even tougher than living in the UK in that case, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps, yes, relatively speaking. But I, I remember that like when I would go back to visit my grandparents um, in Dublin, um, we would watch uh, Star Trek The Next Generation because gra- my gran was a huge fan of that. And in fact, actually, it's really weird how, you know how you have these weird specific memories of watching things? Like, it's the seventh season of The Next Generation that I remember watching with my gran and granddad on like the crappy old TV set in the corner of the room you know it's kind of like I can specifically remember Gambit part one and part two which is probably not anybody's favorite Star Trek memory but it's perhaps one of my most treasured with regards to Voyager and watching Voyager live I don't actually remember uh coming to it that early or that strong what I do remember is that um when I moved back, when my family moved back to Ireland, um, I earned, started earning money. And I thought that because I, I really loved the next generation, I got myself cassettes of all the next generation. And when that, when I got all of those, I moved on to Deep Space Nine. And as Deep Space Nine was going on, Voyager was going on at the same time. And I would pick up those cassettes as well. Um, and I would occasionally watch, I, I did, I was lucky enough to have Sky One. So I was able to watch, I think, the fourth season of Deep Space Nine and the fifth season of Deep Space Nine, along with the second and third season of Voyager on Sky One live as well. Um, and I don't, really have that many strong memories of kind of watching Voyager, which is, is very strange, which is why I was kind of cautious when I mentioned about going back and, and rewatching it, because I had this sort of preconception of like, I have strong memories of how I felt about Deep Space Nine. I have strong memories about how I felt about The Next Generation. I even have strong memories about how I felt about Enterprise, because it was the second season of Enterprise that got me to give up on watching Star Trek live on television the first time around. Because, I mean, it's not the worst season in the history of the franchise, but it is one of the most grueling to watch on a week-to-week basis, I would argue. Uh, Whereas with Voyager, there was just a kind of a a void there in my own personal experience of, of the show. And it's interesting because when I go back, I remember bits and pieces of it. I remember stuff like watching Scorpion Part 1 and Scorpion Part 2, or even like that run of episodes in the early fourth season, uh, which I turned out that, you know, I remembered surprisingly vividly, much more than I expected to. And it's kind of actually interesting that you should mention, because you, you sort of mentioned the character of Chakotay and the characters around Voyager and what happened. And particularly like episodes like Alliances, where they were trying to do new things. One of the interesting things about Voyager is that the show in its early couple of seasons, keeps trying to do things. And they don't always work. And the character of Chakotay is arguably a prime example of this, right? So Chakotay is introduced in the first season. He's introduced as this kind of Native American character. And I mean, there's a whole context about how he fits in the idea of like a space Western, particularly given the caretaker owes so much to the searchers. You know, they literally go down to a desert planet and rescue a woman who's been kidnapped by uh, a group of natives that look like they could be taken from a John John Ford movie. Uh, but you have like this idea of Chakotay kind of in the first season, 
they had uh, Jamaica Highwater um, was the consultant there who informed, who sort of like informed the presentation of Chakotay's Native American heritage. It would turn out uh, in later years that Highwater wasn't a fraud, uh, who had actually no real connection to to actual Native American tribes. And so a lot of the portrayal of Chakotay was, uh, shall we say, inaccurate and insensitive. And what happens is that like once the show... Once the show backs away from this idea of Chakotay doing the kind of like the vision quest that you see in episodes like The Cloud or like Initiations, to pick an example, it doesn't really have any idea what to do to fill that void. It just knows that like, well, we can't do that with Chakotay anymore. So what do we do? And then you have like, as you pointed out, in the second and third season, you have the like occasional conflicts and chemistry with Janeway. And Taylor kind of was really sort of pushing that whole angle of like the repressed sort of like, uh, oh, we, we really very clearly want to hook up but we can't because it would be improper in episodes like Resolutions for example which is a surprisingly sweet and tender episode of Star Trek that is utterly unlike any other episode in the franchise history and I kind of adore it for that fact even if parts of it are ridiculously trite Um, but there is something very odd and very sensitive in like Chakotay and Janeway build a house together which I kind of really admire Um, but what happens is that then with the fourth season you have the introduction of Seven of Nine and she becomes the foil for Janeway. She becomes Janeway's primary relationship in the main cast. And while you could argue that other characters suffer from this, you know, all of a sudden Tuvok doesn't have to be the confidant, for example. And, you know, the DMH, you know, doesn't have to be the character learning about humanity. The character who's most affected, I would argue, by the arrival of Seven of Nine is Chakotay. Because Chakotay, to that point, is defined almost entirely by his relationship to Janeway. And when you make Janeway's most important relationship and most, like, conflicted relationship, Relationship, the relationship with Seven of Nine, that's where the drama lies. And so they get kind of like, they brush away from Chakotay. And what you see throughout the, the run of Voyager is it will try things and they won't work. So you mentioned the idea of Paris as a bad boy. Um, and that comes up repeatedly in the, in the first couple of seasons. So it comes up in episodes like Ex Post Facto, but it's the idea like Investigations is based on the idea that, you know, Paris wants to quit the crew. You have that really absurd second season running arc where he like punches Chakotay and runs a gambling den and stops shaving for a couple of weeks to show how badass he is. And like that doesn't play, I would argue, and I think that Robert Duncan McNeil would concede this, that doesn't play to Robert Duncan McNeil's strengths as a performer. His strengths as a performer are that he's incredibly charming and lovely and seems like a really nice guy. Um, so you can't really have him play devilish rogue. And the same thing happens with Kim. You have a lot of episodes focused on Kim in the first couple of seasons where they try to play up his kind of naivety and his sort of like, you know, lack of experience of stuff like emanations, where he goes on an away mission and ends up separated from the group or non sequitur tour where he gets separated from the crew and sent home or even stuff like favorite son where he's abducted by a bunch of aliens and like you know seduced in this sort of weird kind of siren-esque sort of story and again none of those really play to garrett wang's sort of strength as an actor or his presence and so the show figures that doesn't work and it stops doing it same thing with like the Kazon arc the Kazon arc is an attempt to introduce serialization it goes spectacularly wrong and blows up in everybody's faces voyager stops trying to do that and instead settles into doing what it knows it can do. And it's kind of that, that's, I think, why the show gets more generic. Cause what happens is, and again, I don't want to be this, I don't want this to be the hour where it's like Darren compares Voyager unfavorably to Deep Space Nine. But like, if we're being honest about Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine has the exact same teething problems that Voyager does. So it has problem characters. In the first three seasons of Deep Space Nine, it has no idea what to do with the characters of Quark, the characters of Dax, and the characters 
character of Bashir. Notably, like you have episodes where Quark repeatedly either gets the station in danger through greed or betrays the primary cast with no consequences because that's what we think he's supposed to do. It takes a little while for the writers to figure out actually we can build episodes around his morality and we give Armin Shimmerman some stuff to play. Similarly with Jadzia, where Jadzia, they have no idea what Terry Farrell's strengths as an actor are. They initially ask her to play this stoic, restrained old man character who's basically the Spock of the crew, which completely misunderstand Farrell's like persona as an actor. She becomes a lot more comfortable when they realize actually she's she's a great deal of fun. Put her in scenes where she's the center of attention or the life of the party and give her material where she can kind of chew on and and she'll have fun with that and that will work. So like in the first couple of seasons you have episodes where Dax is a plot device. Like in Dax, like invasive procedures or even like uh facets or um equilibrium. But again, Bashir for the first three seasons of Deep Space Nine gets the inverted commas generic Star Trek plots. He gets taken over by an evil alien in Passengers in order to give, you know, Siddiq Al-Fadil the chance to do a really odd deep voice that he subsequently redubs with an equally odd deep voice. But even things like, say, the generic romance episode, like Melora, or the, he's got a dark secret, but we're not going to tell you what it is. It's just going to give us an excuse to shoot a low-budget episode with no lighting in distant uh, voices in the third season as well. And Unlike Voyager, when Voyager finds something that it can't make work, it retreats from it. When Deep Space Nine finds something that's not working, it looks at it and tries to find a way to make it work. The reason that the fourth season of Deep Space Nine is one of the best seasons in the history of the franchise is because it finally figures all of those things out. You have the best Jadzia Dax episode in the entire show's run with Rejoined, which hinges on the idea that Terry Farrell is a tremendous emotional presence and that she has this incredible openness to her that it's very easy to invest in. You have the three strongest Bashir episodes, or three of the strongest Bashir episodes, certainly the three strongest at that point, with Hippocratic Oath, The Quickening, and Arman Bashir all of which are based on the fact the writers have looked at uh, Alexander Siddick at that point and figured out that he is very, very good at playing earnestness and sincerity and that we should definitely lean into that, and particularly his established relationships with cast members Colin Meany and Andrew Robinson. And even stuff like, say, the Dominion arc, which doesn't really work in the third season. The third season kind of wanders around in circles trying to make the Dominion plot work. It's a lot like the Kazon plot in the second season of Voyager. There's a sense of there's an impending threat, but we've got no idea how to articulate that. But rather than giving up on that, what they do is they come back in the fourth season and they say, actually, we're going to do the Klingons and we're going to tie that into the Dominion stuff and then we're going to be sailing. And like, Deep Space Nine gets progressively better at everything that it does as it does it, so that there's this massive leap in quality between, say, the third season and the fourth season. Voyager, I would argue, and this is this is probably the fatal flaw with Voyager, is that it tries to do these things and they don't always work. And that's grand because when you're trying to produce a television show, you're working on an incredibly tight schedule. You're working with actors that you don't necessarily, you haven't necessarily auditioned to the degree that you've auditioned to film. You are working on a week to week basis. So you're finding out new problems as you go along and trying to fix them as you go along. And it's not always going to work as you anticipate. But Voyager doesn't react to any of these as opportunities. It kind of retreats from them. And that's why you end up with things like, say, Neelix as the cuddly uncle figure, because Neelix as the rogue trader, which he's meant to be in Caretaker, doesn't work. And he doesn't work because the relationship with Kess is incredibly creepy. If you've rewatched those episodes, and particularly, say, episodes like um, The Phage, for example, or even Twisted, or, or if you want to go in the second season, Elogium, where Neelix is possessive, emotionally manipulative, um, 
and borderline vindictive in his treatment of Kess. And so as a result, he seems creepy rather than roguish. And the show, rather than trying to figure out like how to make that dynamic work, just says, screw it. We're going to we're going to do a soft reboot. He's going to be the cuddly teddy bear character that everybody sort of thinks he is and that we know will work. So you have things like Neelix and Kess. Do you remember how Neelix and Kess break up? Yes, she gets possessed by an alien intelligence and and dumps him, and then somehow it it carries over when she gets unpossessed. Is that right? Yes, yeah, that's it exactly. <laughs> I do remember it only because it's such a bizarre piece of storytelling and such a kind of like refusal to uh, actually write a serious story about something like that. Which is which is you know if you're inter- I mean it is con- there is continuity insofar as you know they're together and then they're not together, but that that has to be written, and they just basically avoid writing it. I would say. Part of me wonders, what is the first conversation between Kess and Neelix like after they've taken, like, the, you know, genocidal warlord out of her? Where Kess is like, you know, you know, some of the stuff he said actually made sense. <laughs> Mainly just the bit about, yeah, <laughs> about my relationship Something priorities, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's going to give you a different perspective on your love life, if nothing else. Tiernan was kind of misunderstood as, like, a dictator in, like, a Delta Quadrant power. His real strength was, like, as a, as a newspaper-style man. <laughs> <laughs> that was what he should have been doing all those years. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's interesting what you're saying about this idea of you know Voyager trying things, realizing they don't they don't work, and dropping them. The other side of that, I think, is that Voyager absolutely, when it finds something that does work, it does go back to it again and again. And maybe that's one of the reasons that the show, in some ways, did feel a little bit repetitive, did feel a little bit safe. I mean, a big complaint in the latter seasons, in particular, was it became the Doctor and Seven of Nine show. And one of the reasons for that is that you know those are two characters who they got great mileage out of. They got really good performances. They got really good stories. They got interesting stuff out of both those characters. I mean. I mean, whatever you think of of Seven of Nine and the the kind of reasons behind the introduction of her and how she was introduced and the effect that that had on the show that they were trying to make up to that point, and obviously the dynamics with the rest of the cast. You know, we know the dynamic with Kate Mulgrew was terrible. You, you know, sort of behind the scenes, uh, as much as it it played out very well on screen. Um, but there is a reason that they keep coming back to that. And another example, I think, actually, would be one of the great strengths. I mean, you, you were sort of suggesting, I think, rightly, that a lot of the kind of um, characters in Voyager, that they kept not quite working out what sort of stories to give them. But Lana Torres, they do work out what kind of stories to give her. They give her these kind of tortured emotional um emotional turmoil they give her the same story once a year. It's like clockwork. It's like it's time for the Torres episode. Torres is angry. Like, that's the episode. Yeah, but she always comes up with the goods and you get, and yes. you get some of the yep. show's best episodes, I would argue, out of Roxanne Dawson because they work out. Absolutely. Balana works. I mean, in the same way as you might say, you know, the, on DS9, Chief O'Brien must suffer. You know, you get this idea of Chief O'Brien must suffer. <laughs> I mean, Balana, in a sense, has to suffer as well, but you do get really powerful, moving, uh, dramatic, uh, stories out of that yeah. because they found okay this is something that she can do she she's you know breaks her heart every time she does it let's give her another one of these you know really grueling um episodes and 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 that did give them you know yes it's rep- the, the downside of it is it's repetitive and it feels in some ways like there's it doesn't move forward necessarily because you sort of feel like every time you think you've got past a certain element of Bellana's character, it comes back again. On the other hand, you could say in some ways that's maybe not 100% realistic, but it is. there's an element of realism there insofar as her kind of personal demons, her kind of um, baggage uh, does keep coming back and 
you know, affecting her life in the way that, you know, sadly it does happen to people. Do you know what I mean? You might think you've got over your issue with your parents, your issue with, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, or your anger management. And then you might find that, you, you know, in a new situation and you're, you know, something unexpected happens that you haven't. Do you know what I mean? And so on that level, you could almost say that there is a kind of realism to that. But I think you're right that the, the, danger of it is that it feels like there's a kind of regularity and it's almost going back to the same well rather than kind of really developing that in a kind of more continuity focused way and and there is a storyline going forward there you know for tom and balana but it's kind of it, it it's a little bit sketchy um and, and even things like again you know you were saying when do when do um kes and um neelix break up i mean when does tom and balana get married there's that weird thing that we see the wedding but it's not their wedding and then when it's actually their wedding we don't see the wedding do you know what i mean this kind of weird yeah. coyness around i suppose you could say the sort of soap opera elements of the show because the show did have these kind of soap opera elements and deep space nine had soap opera elements as well you know with the relationships you know starting and breaking up and so on but they committed to it well i mean cisco and, and cassidy got married at the start of the, the you know, exactly but we we got to you know we, we, we you don't feel Deep Space Nine never felt like it was sort of being coy about that. That was part of its storytelling. That was part of what it was doing. Uh, with Voyager, it always sort of feels a little bit like there's like, yeah, we, we sort of are doing those things. We are doing those relationship things. We are doing those kind of soapy things. But at the same time, you know, this is still Star Trek. We're still doing the, you know, anomaly of the week or whatever. This is, you, you know, we're, we're not a kind of, it's, it's, we haven't turned into ER or whatever it is, you know. No, I, I would agree with that actually. And actually, I quite like the, first of all, I, I think that uh, Dawson is a great actor, and I think that those episodes, by and large, do work individually. The only problem with them is that you could almost watch them out of order, um, and you'd have no idea where each one came from. Uh, with regards to the relationship between Paris and Taurus, which I also kind of like as perhaps the most functional marriage um, <laughs> on a Star Trek TV show, yeah. if only because it seems like they're two people who really like each other and very rarely have like profound kind of like world-ending apocalyptic sort of drama between them, which is a kind of relationship goal that I <laughs> aspire to um but um and also you know it's probably a healthier relationship overall um than you know dax and wharf uh whatever was going on there but i would say actually one of the interesting things and you're entirely right about this and this is kind of what you're suggesting is that a lot of that stuff is almost you can see it reverse engineered there's a certain cynicism in how it's put together um like during the fourth season um it was it was duncan mcneil and uh biggs dawson who were pushing for the romance between paris and torres because they wanted something to play and the writers themselves were feeling they weren't exactly feeling the romance they weren't sure how to approach it they weren't sure they wanted to push it on or whatever and it's interesting that like you mentioned the marriage right which first of all you get to see play out in operation uh, sorry, no, of course, Oblivion, uh, which isn't the real marriage, uh, which is, again, one of those wry, self-aware Voyager almost having fun at itself. It's like, you're never going to get to see the real thing, <laughs> so we're going to show you it in this episode where we blow up the ship again. Yeah. Um, but it, it's also, when it does happen in the seventh season, and obviously you don't see it, what's interesting about that is that if you look at the press around it, right, the interviews with Dawson around it, it is incredibly cynically reverse engineered because the writing staff have decided that they want the show to end with Torres delivering her baby as the show gets back to, as the ship gets back to Earth, right. which is very convenient narratively because it means you don't have to deal with, you know, Paris and Torres being parents because that would change the status quo that we've already grown comfortable with. So that means that Torres, in order to have that baby, has to get pregnant roughly nine months before that point. 
And to hear Dawson describe it in the press is like, well, we couldn't have an unmarried mother on Star <laughs> Trek in 1990, you know, in sort of like 2000. Yeah. So uh, that's that's why we got married, um, which is a really ridiculously sort of cynical piece of plotting. And I mean, like we joked about the show doing the annual Torres Gets Mad episode, right? Which is, you know... Which is grand because that gives Dawson something to play. It becomes more of a problem with other characters where you do the annual Kim asserts himself episode, uh, which is always Harry Kim is put in charge of a situation. Something disastrous happens. Kim doubts his self-confidence and we'll repeat this next year. So episodes like, for example, Warhead, where he's on the night shift and somehow builds a sentient weapon of mass destruction on board the ship. Um, Nightingale, for example, which is the one where he's given in charge of a small medical frigate that turns turns out to be carrying, again, weapons of mass destruction. Um, but even things like, it's it's characters like Tuvok who suffer particularly well, or particularly awfully along those lines. Because I would argue Meld is one of my favourite episodes of Star Trek ever made in the second season. It's Brad Dorff and Tim Russ. They're both amazing in it. It's a wonderfully clever concept, which is like, what happens if you take the Vulcan idea of logic and brush it up against something that is fundamentally irrational. What happens? It's that it's that paradigm of the, you know, unstoppable force and an immovable object. It's how do you apply logic to something that is fundamentally illogical, like the the human psyche, and particularly like a, you know, a psychotic individual. And it's a great premise, and the two actors act the hell out of it. And it's something, again, you know, I keep saying it in this, for all that Voyager was formulating cliche, something I hadn't really seen done with Star Trek before to that point. The problem is the writers looked at that, said Tim Ross is very, very good at playing deranged. So, what is our plan for Tuvok going forward? About once a year, he's going to lose his goddamn mind. Um, and like, so you have episodes like Riddles, for example, where his mind, where he's reduced to the mind of a child, but you have episodes like, for example, um, Repression in the seventh season, which isn't even really a Tuvok episode. It's the closest thing that Tim Ross gets to a character centric showcase in the final season. And he's really just a plot device. He's a psychotic, you know, mind melding kind of assaulting Vulcan who ends up doing a weird, Maki revenge like coup d'etat plot it, it, it's a it's not it's a strange episode but you can tell that it's it arises because the writers have reached the point where they're like what can we do with Tuvok all we know is that Tim Ross plays insane very well so let's find another way to shoehorn in an episode where Tuvok goes insane and it's a shame because I would argue that Gravity in the show's fifth season, which is one of the very rare Tuvok-centric episodes that isn't about his breakdown or isn't about Tuvok having a psychotic break is one of the best episodes of the show and one of the best love stories that Star Trek's ever told. Ironically enough, it's it's around the same time the show also does Counterpoint, which is another one of the greatest love stories that Star Trek ever told. But in Gravity, you have this wonderful idea of what it's like, what happens when a Vulcan is in love? What happens when a Vulcan feels an emotional attachment that they have to repress, that they can't quite express because the situation won't allow it or because it's improper or because it's not logical? And how you react to those and how you're dealing with somebody who doesn't conform to those sort of expectations. And you have this absolutely sort of beautiful love story that plays remarkably well of Tim Russ's stoicism um, and also a fantastic guest performance from Laurie Petty um, as well. And it, it's just, it's something that, again, is is very odd and very unusual and very different from what, you know, Voyager usually did with Tuvok and is the better for it. But it's a shame because you know that the next time you get to Workforce Part 1 and Workforce Part 2, Tuvok is going to end up strapped to a chair again, losing his mind. Um, and it, it's just, it, it's a waste. It feels like a kind of a lost opportunity. 
I wonder whether part of it, though, is that we are looking at this show very much in terms of character. Uh, Deep Space Nine, obviously, to make the obvious comparison again, was a show that handled character exceptionally well, I think, you know, certainly by Star Trek standards and by the standards of, of TV, probably more generally. Um, Voyager had strengths that were different. I mean, I think Voyager had a lot of kind of high concept episodes, had a lot of kind of um, not exactly hard sci-fi, but kind of, you know, proper sci-fi uh, conceits, kind of ideas, experiments. It was quite an experimental show in some ways. Um, and, and I sort of wonder, are we almost expecting something out of this show in retrospect, maybe knowing that it was running at the same time as Deep Space Nine, that wasn't a hundred percent realistic or reasonable. I mean, first of all, we know Deep Space Nine had a freer hand to do kind of crazy things, to do things like, um, an episode, uh, like, uh, it's only a paper moon, for example, featuring two, uh, recurring guest characters, one of whom is not even a, an organic, uh, entity, <laughs> you know, and have a kind of existential and, uh, psychological mental health crisis going on between the two of them. Something that possibly Voyager would never have got away with. I mean, Voyager was the show that was under much more of um, a spotlight because it was on UPN. Exactly. Yeah, it would. You know, there were expectations on it. And the same again with Enterprise. Enterprise had a lot of those same problems. It had a lot of kind of network interference and this kind of thing, which in a way Deep Space Nine didn't have. But I'm also kind of curious, you know, you mentioned in passing earlier this idea of the kind of 90s-ness of the show. And I, I certainly know what you mean. It feels like a show that's very much of its time. Possibly Deep Space Nine was a show that felt like it was ahead of its time. And that's one reason that that show has, you know, with the advent of streaming services, with Netflix and so on, uh, with the, the idea of binge watching, Deep Space Nine has really kind of come into its own in a way that, you know, for many people, I mean, I was uh, addicted to Deep Space Nine in in first run. I was getting those videotapes every time I was obsessed with the kind of long-form storytelling, with the kind of developing story of the Dominion War and everything. But a lot of people weren't. A lot of people found it impossible to follow. Uh, if they weren't that dedicated, they, they slightly tuned out of that. Maybe Voyager was kind of serving... Uh, the, the master that it was kind of... Um, that it was there for, to some extent. And I kind of just wonder, I mean... So there's this sense of, you know, was it a show of its time? But I'm interested also for you. I mean, I know you obviously, uh, as some of our listeners will know, have written a lot about the X-Files, the X-Files being a kind of contemporary of both these shows kind of running, you know, through the 90s in that kind of period. Um, wh what do you see as the kind of um, embodiedness in the era of Voyager. What is it about Voyager that you see it that, that makes it so kind of um, characteristically of that moment? In the same way as we might say the original series is characteristically of the 1960s, whether that's the colour palette or the kind of um, some of the, you know, psychedelia, psychedelia exactly of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the 90s obviously is not such a kind of... Um, uh, exuberant, flamboyant era, uh, in some ways. In some ways, it's quite a sort of conservative era, I think we could say. But, you, you know, is that something that you think is played out in these episodes one way or another? Is that something that we can kind of see in them? And how does that relate to something like The X-Files, which is a very different show, um, but coming from a kind of similar period? And, and in, in some ways, you know, of that moment as well, in terms of some of its kind of concerns and preoccupations. The thing about Voyager, and this is actually kind of interesting because you mentioned me tying into something that I referenced earlier. This is kind of brings me back to something that you mentioned earlier that I think is kind of worth kind of coming back to and kind of worth mentioning, um, which is kind of um, this idea of the Delta Quadrant and kind of like the idea of how the Delta Quadrant is defined and Voyager's relationship uh, with the Delta Quadrant, right? So 
the issue is that um, I do think that I actually think that all of the Star Trek shows, um, with the possible exception of Deep Space Nine in particular, because I think Deep Space Nine is weirdly timeless. It's very much looking back towards um, certain periods of history, uh, which means that it's kind of it it carries on and it's kind of become more resonant in the years that follow. Whereas I do think that the original Star Trek is very much rooted in the sixties. I think that uh, Next Generation is very much rooted in the like dying days of the Cold War. And I think that even, say, Enterprise is obviously, even though about half its first season was produced before 9-11 happened, it is still very much shaped as a post-9-11 Star Trek show. And a large part of the discussion that's playing out in in Enterprise is a question of how do we make Star Trek after 9-11? How do we reconcile the franchise's utopianism and humanism after those horrific terrorist attacks? Uh, But with regards to Voyager's 90s-ness... Couple of couple of quick things there, just in terms of that. Most obviously, in terms of its politics, um, the nineties was an era. It's you know you can define the nineties loosely. You know, you could, the, the smart ass is going to say it's between nineteen ninety and nineteen ninety nine, or between ninety one and two thousand. But you know, conceptually, you could argue the nineties existed between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the attack on the World Trade Center. Um, it was a period in which the United States existed as the sole superpower, um, the lonely superpower. I think Foreign Affairs described it as in nineteen ninety nine. Charles Krauthammer called it the unipolar moment, and obviously, infamously, and not aging particularly wellly, uh, you have The End of History um, from Francis Fukuyama, who, which basically these came together and sort of suggested that the United States had won the Cold War. It was the single global superpower. It was the defining force in politics during the 90s. The 90s were, by and large, a prosperous era for the United States. There was no recession like there had been during the 70s. Um, people were, you know, employment was pretty high. People were pretty happy overall. And there was a sense that, you know, things were about as good as they could be. Socially, you had sort of like progressive movements. You had gay rights coming into the kind of the discussion. You had the Clinton White House, Clinton, you know, arguably being one of the first proper pop star presidents, playing saxophone, being relatable and stuff like that. And you had this idea kind of that things were as good as they were going to get, even in terms of foreign engagement. You know, people have talked about the 90s foreign policy, and you can obviously, there are criticisms to be made of, say, Clinton's lack of involvement over Rwanda. But by and large, the 90s for America were, you know, not defined were by you know, massive failures. Uh, there was no Vietnam War happening. There was no war in Iraq. There was, well, there was a war in Iraq, but it was a very different war in Iraq. The first Gulf War was a largely kind of like, it was it was very few losses, relatively speaking, compared to the Vietnam War. It was seen as being relatively triumphant, even if they didn't get all the way to Baghdad. And you had smaller military interventions happening in places like Haiti, to pick an example, but airstrikes even in Kosovo, and sort of obviously airstrikes uh, over Iraq as well to kind of enforce the no-fly zone and to basically kind of bring peace to the region. So there's a sense that, like, the world was a relatively stable place for most of the 90s. And that bleeds through, I think, into how Voyager sees the universe. If you look at the original Star Trek and the Next Generation and even Deep Space Nine, the Alpha Quadrant is defined by empires, empires that exist in opposition to one another. Um, so there's the Klingon Empire, there's the Romulans, you know, then there's the Cardassians, etc., etc., but they all exist in opposition to the Federation. And there's this idea of there being a balance between global powers, which is a very Cold War perspective. Now, obviously, in Deep Space Nine, that Cold War becomes a lot hotter. In Voyager, when Voyager gets sent over to the Delta Quadrant, there is no major power. Even the powers that recur, 
which are like the Vidians and the Kazon. The Vidians are a decentralized force. They're basically scavengers. They were once kind of this culturally superior empire that's sort of been brought down by the phage and have basically been forced to kind of harvest and exploit any poor soul they can find. The Kazon are rival tribes. They're basically skirmishing in the, the rubble of the fallen trade empire. Um, you have even like the recurring motif of destruction with Talax and, and kind of like the idea that you have maybe there were empires here once, but they've all fallen. Um, Delta Quadrant is defined by the dispossessed. You have the trade, for example, in alliances, but you even have like the refugees in, in Day of Honor, to pick another example. Um, you have the wanderers, uh, the wandering society, the nomads in, in Darkling as well along those lines. And again, the, the, the show makes the point. It argues that maybe the Borg are responsible for this. The fact that the Borg exists mean that no society can rise high before it's struck down. You know, you have episodes like Blood Fever that suggest something along those lines. But the general sense is that Voyager is almost a superpower unto itself in the Delta Quadrant, um, in that it has a capacity to affect massive change. And you see that in episodes like the first season episode, State of Flux, where the Kazon managed to get hold of a transporter and the results are absolutely horrific. But you even see it in the recurring motif of nuclear proliferation that runs through the show. The show is strangely preoccupied with the idea of forces, you know, of primitive societies dealing with technology that they're not ready to deal with. Time and again, I think, was like the second or third episode of the show after Parallax. Uh, but even things like the Omega Directive, which is basically about Janeway going in and preventing a culture from making a scientific discovery that effectively amounts to a superweapon. And what you have is arguably, and it's not, I'm not the first person to advance this argument, and I wish I had the historian's name to hand, uh, but he wrote a wonderful article called Voyager, Voyaging in the Developing World, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to include in the show notes. He made an argument that a lot of how the Delta Quadrant is presented is very similar to how America saw the developing world in the, uh, in the 90s, where it's these sort of like, there's a lot of desert planets. Um, Caretaker famously has the crew going to a desert planet, first of all, but even episodes like False Prophets on fold in planets that are like hot and humid and sweaty. There's a lot of dictatorships. Um, so for example, like the Devore Imperium and Counterpoint, but even like the fascists in Resistance. Um, there's a lot of like, there's a sense that there once were empires here, but there are no longer anymore. You have like the robots still fighting the war in Care sorry, in uh, Prototype, for example. You have the weapons that were sent out, you know, in Warhead and, and never got the signal to come back. Um, and you have this sense of basically everything being very small and any problems that Voyager encounters amounting to bushfires in the world, which is a very 90s perspective. But that ties into the 90s-ness of the show in other ways. And you can see it in things like the question of how the moral responsibility that comes with that. Voyager is like uniquely, in terms of the Star Trek canon, engaged with the idea of memory and history. So you see that obviously in episodes like Remember, which I would argue is a massively underrated episode of Voyager. It's one of the best episodes of the show. It's the one where Torres um, gets memories beamed into her head of genocide. And it's a show, I would say, Voyager is a show that is almost... I was going to say obsessed, not 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 consistently, but the amount of kind of Holocaust inflected storytelling in that show is quite surprising in some ways, and I don't know whether that's partly a legacy of the kind of you know fiftieth anniversary in the nineties of the end of the Second World War, and you you know you do get something like an episode like Jatrell, which is not about the Holocaust, obviously about the atomic bomb, but was specifically you know an anniversary episode. It was kind of intended in that way, and then you get repeatedly all these kind of um, um, you know, sort of Holocaust storytelling. Remember being a, a good example of that. Um, it, it does feel like it's an interesting sense that as much as this is a show that is 
of its time in the 90s that a lot of that is about looking back at that kind of wartime period. You know, it's, it's a show that as, as much as we might say Deep Space Nine is kind of living in that kind of uh, world of the Second World War to some extent, Voyager is kind of constantly glancing back in that direction one way or another. But at the same time, it's also kind of constantly glancing into the distant future. It's got this weird sense of uh, it kind of can look both ways one way or another. Yeah, because its relationship between the past and the future is interesting because it, it repeatedly su- – well, first of all, it, it suge- its recurring preoccupation is the idea that the past, you know – can't be changed. It is immutable. It is a reality, but that it can be manipulated. And that, like, if we forget the past, we're doomed to repeat it. You mentioned Remember, but even episodes like Living Witness, for example, but you could also argue even episodes like Memorial uh, later on as well, all touch on this idea of the importance of remembering the past as it was, rather than allowing it to be rewritten or manipulated. Distant Origin is another one of those episodes along those lines. And this kind of is, is interesting because it gets at... I mean, okay, very, very quick tangent as well is that the show, despite being like the last 24th century Star Trek show, is strangely aesthetically a prequel to the original series because it harks back as often to the 50s as it does to anything else. Like Captain Proton, um, Tom's sort of like, you know, holodeck programs like the 3D Cinema and Repression, the auto mechanic one in Visa V, for example, but even things like episodes like uh, Cathesis in the first season, which is the one with the body hopping alien, uh, which is very much, it's a Cold War paranoia communist thriller. Or In the Flesh, which is a Potemkin Village episode, which is another Cold War thriller that just happens to be. But even episodes where they find a pickup truck spoke floating in space or where the EMH in Life Science takes, you know, uh, his date to the surface of Venus so they can park in a Cadillac and stare up at the, at the I think it's Mars Rise is what's happening there or something like that, or Moon or Earth Rise. Um, but you have this kind of like sense of like being preoccupied with the 50s and almost kind of wanting to go back in a way that paves the way for Enterprise as a literal prequel to Star Trek. But you're right about the future. And what's interesting about the future is, and this gets at the idea of the end of history and kind of as, as a preoccupation of Voyager. Voyager is the Star Trek episode, as uh, a Star Trek series that suggests that the future of the Star Trek universe is certain and stable and unchanging. In Future's End Part 1 and Part 2, you get introduced to the 29th century Starfleet, and the idea is that they are pretty much exactly the same as Starfleet as it exists today. They just so happen to be patrolling time as well as space. It happens again in, say, Relativity, where you actually get to spend time on Relativity with Captain Braxton, which also suggests that, you know, the Federation is still active in that distant future, and that everything will be fine. And, and even, like, episodes like, say, Living Witness, uh, which is the, up until, I believe, um, the short trek uh, in Discovery, the furthest point that Star Trek has gone along its own timeline. And in that episode, the MH is woken up, and it's business as usual. The Delta Quadrant hasn't been invaded by Species 8472 or conquered by the Borg. In the end, he even takes a shuttle and sets course for Earth, with the assumption that Earth will be there waiting for him when it gets ba- when, he, when he arrives, you know? So you have this sense of the future being immutable and unchanging. And again, this is in stark contrast to, to pick a couple of examples here, um, Deep Space Nine, even at the same time, where you have episodes like, say, Statistical Probabilities, where Bashir can't seem to successfully predict the outcome of the Dominion War. There's a sense of there being an existential doubt and uncertainty there. Or even in, say, Inter Arma Enum Silent Ledges, which is the... Um, 
which is an episode about like how at the end of the Dominion War there's going to be another conflict coming and another epoch defining sort of thing and that nothing is ever settled or stable but then when you get to Enterprise uh, which is a product of the War on Terror post 9-11 anxieties and uncertainties about American identity because Star Trek is in large part an extrapolation I would argue of American liberal values and utopianism into the far future all of a sudden after 9-11 the future becomes a lot less stable so you have episodes like Cold Front or Shock way part one and part two where the future that star trek promised us is kind of put into question and there's a question of like will we even make it to the established 23rd and 24th centuries let alone will we make it to the 29th and like i think that's part of what defines voyager as a 90s show is because it has that and i, I don't even necessarily want to describe it as optimism because i'm not entirely sure the show itself sees it as optimism but belief uh, that things are as good as they are ever going to be and they will continue to be this way until literally the end of time there's a strange certainty and comfort in voyager which arguably feels appropriate in a show that is as episodic because again you can watching voyager is almost getting a sense of voyager's worldview everything is going to be okay by the end of the episode no matter what happens even if voyager gets blown up even if Kim gets blown out into space, even if the crew are melting and falling apart, even if they're hunted by the Herosian, you know at the end of the episode that everything's going to be okay, everything's going to bounce back and everything will be reset to the way that it was because that's the way that it should be. And that's kind of, you know, you could argue that there are obviously reasons for that in terms of production and in terms of constraints on the production team, but that is a very 90s mindset. It's like, this is how the world is. It is never going to change. We've reached sort of the end end of history. And what I, we know, we have been maybe a little bit critical of Voyager sort of talking about it here. One of the things that I really love about it, and I think speaks really, really, really well to it, embodying that sense of like a time and a place and a mindset, is its recurring preoccupation with the notion of unreality. Um, and the show does this repeatedly. You mentioned the EMH and Seven of Nine as being breakout characters on the show. Part of that is the performances. Robert Picardo and Jerry Ryan are among the best regulars ever to appear on Star Trek. But part of it's also because the characters exist uh, and play to what I think are thematic interests of Voyager. Voyager, as I mentioned, is very fond of doing Tuvok has a breakdown episodes, but it's also very fond of having EMH and Seven of Nine have breakdown episodes but in literalizing those breakdowns. So like in projections, the EMH effectively has a nervous breakdown and a complete psychological break from reality. But because he's a computer program and because he's in the holodeck, the show is able to literalize that. You have it happening uh, later on in the third season, The Swarm, where he develops a degenerative uh, neurological condition. But because he's a computer-generated program, you can play that out in terms of like literalizing it. Seven of Nine develops multiple personality disorder in Infinite Regress. Uh, but you're able to play that out by explaining it's her Borg implant. You know, it's that sort of thing going on through that. And you get that kind of like idea that at in the 90s, despite the fact that everything was perfect, and despite the fact that, you know, at the time, everything seemed stable and secure and reliable. And it's notable that Voyager is the Star Trek show that cures death. Um, in Mortal Coil with Seven of Nine's nanoprobes. You know, the show that they're stranded on the opposite side of the galaxy. They never seem to run out of shuttles. They never seem to run out of like security personnel. Everything is fine. It's, it's grand, which is a very 90s aesthetic. But despite that, there's this recurring kind of gnawing sense of insecurity about what is real and what is not. And it plays out throughout Voyager. Now, again, you could argue this is Brandon Braga's influence on the show. Obviously, stuff like, say, schisms and even you could argue cause and effect 
connect or phantasms when he's working on the next generation all played with similar ideas but in voyager you have this idea of there's constantly duplicates of the ship uh, there are constantly imposters on the ship. There are constantly people impersonating members of the crew. There are constantly copies of characters wandering around, whether body swapping or possession or whatever. There are constantly aliens disguising themselves as members of the crew. There are episodes that unfold largely with like replacements of the crew. So they're like the actors appear in episodes like say living witness but they're playing holographic versions of the characters but say worst case scenario does it with the crew author author does it with the crew there's this constant sense of like fakery sort of fake a fake a fake version of the show that they're making yeah yeah absolutely and in live fast and prosper is the kind of you know ultimate embodiment of, in the, of that in a sense as these kind of con artists and i suppose that kind of ties in a little bit with this idea of the myth of voyager do you know what i mean this sense that this ship represent something beyond the actual physical object actual physical objects or the people that there is something exactly yeah that this that on some level there and the weird thing is i mean we talked a little bit about this previously you know a couple of years ago about the sense that voyager doesn't really make the most of that journey as much as you know they say it's all about the journey it's you know to the journey that there's this weird sense that the journey is almost kind of slightly meaningless or slightly by the by but at the same time they've got this idea of this kind of epic storytelling going on and you know we repeatedly get this idea of voyager as this kind of epic story but it's a weird sense i suppose and maybe this is because one way of looking at it would be from the perspective of these individual aliens the story is not really uh voyager going you know from one it's not really the odyssey in a sense it's not the journey from um caretaker through to endgame it's almost that the myth of it is this sort of story of like this ship that arrives it is almost the same story every time in an odd way because it is this sense of repetition because at each planet they go to uh they they recreate the same story a voyager turned up they caused some kind of trouble you know there was some kind of issue uh they went on their way they left chaos in their wake or whatever it is or, or you know more positively they came <laughs> yeah. and they helped and they were great and isn't starfleet lovely um but do you know what i mean there is this sort of strange sense i suppose voyager is kind of interested in that different perspective on the storytelling and you do get absolutely in distant uh origin you get this fantastic um perspective and this you know brilliantly written uh storyline where for the first whatever it is like 15 minutes or so we don't even see the voyager crew do you know what i mean there's this sense that like they're, they're and they even visit kind of, like sets from previous exactly, episodes yeah, like yeah, from yeah, basics exactly. or yeah. from uh, fair trade yeah. and even when it's not as explicit as that i suppose you could say this sense the show has this sort of interest in its own story and its own mythology and you know even something like the voyager conspiracy which is kind of deconstructing all of that to some extent and sort of uh t- t- trying to tell a different story with the same events somehow being quite playful about the the narrative and and kind of um what it means and and toying with the audience one way or another i suppose and there is that sense with voyager that maybe because it's not as invested in character and in kind of deep emotional journeys and so on is that it's not really as, in, as interesting those kind of in the journey if you think of say nog's journey uh uh you know voyager is interested in much more kind of um schematic or, or sort of loosely sketched idea of a journey rather than a kind of emotional journey but at the same time it kind of frees it up to be more playful um and as much as deep space nine is very playful as well and but the the playfulness in deep space nine comes out of character interaction and kind of um you know sort of unlikely uh relationships and 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 that kind of thing voyager can be much more playful on a kind of um 
more so a structural level or on a kind of more um you know sort of playing with it with within the sandbox if you know what i mean it, it, you know people always talk about the, the star trek rod and reese box or whatever it is a sort of sense of what can we do with these toys what can we do uh with these elements of our storytelling um and there is a kind of freedom to that in some ways i think that voyager has uh that is one of its great strengths and i do think you know as as much as you know as, as you've said as well we've been comparing certain things negatively perhaps to deep space nine for example but there are strengths that voyager has and i do think that kind of playfulness is one of them i do think as i said those kind of high concept episodes distant origin blink of an eye um uh living witness where it is often about kind of shifting the perspective it's about saying you know is there a different way we can tell this story and as much as voyager is kind of repeating next gen uh, and kind of traditional star trek storytelling finding a different way of telling the same stories or finding a different angle on it and i do think that the show you know as much as it sometimes plays it safe and and one of the great pleasures of voyager and one of the reasons i love voyager is there is a kind of coziness to it you can sort of chuck on an episode and there's a lot of charm and a lot of kind of warmth to it but there is also that sense that they are willing to uh try things that might surprise you now and then yeah well that that's the thing actually and I, I suspect that's one of the reasons why voyager has aged i think much better than i expected i mean th- this is this is the irony of writing about voyager in the 21st century is that when i started doing it i was much more positive about voyager than the consensus of it was and it's kind of like by the time it's ended the consensus has moved so far that i actually seem almost curmudgeon uh, in comparison <laughs> right. uh, but like that that's the thing about it is like like you mentioned Deep Space Nine and Voyager are both playing with the idea of Star Trek. And, and I think you're right. Deep Space Nine is playing with Star Trek by like, it's almost limit testing it. It's pushing the boundaries. It's seeing what it can get away with, how you can stress test these ideas. Whereas Voyager is embracing the archetype of Star Trek. And like, that's the thing where you kind of, you file it down to the most archetypal version of Star Trek. You could arguably tell Living Witness with any Star Trek crew you wanted, with the possible exception of Deep Space Nine, because they're not on the ship. You could do like, arguably, do Distant Origin with any crew as well or of course Oblivion, you know, any number of those episodes with any crew and just slot them in and just do an archetypal Star Trek story. But they never would have that's the that's the thing, it's almost it's unimaginable that the next gen crew would have done um, Course Oblivion do you know what I mean? It just doesn't it doesn't fit and I think as much as people like to say that Voyager is sort of next gen light, there are qualities that are quite unique to Voyager um, but maybe they're slightly harder to pin down because they're not it's not as straightforward as saying, you know, Deep Space Nine is the dark, gritty, you know, is is the war series. It's it's, it's kind of easy to see what's different about Deep Space Nine. It's easy to see where the boundaries are being pushed. And one of the reasons is they're being pushed consistently in certain directions and with a lot of kind of... With a very clear view behind them. Exactly. There's a kind of clear impetus in a particular direction. Because uh, Bear was in charge for like the the bulk of the run of Deep Space Nine. So there was a singular vision as opposed to Deep Space Nine... Sorry, as opposed to Voyager, which changed hands repeatedly. I mean, even the seventh season was run by Bill instead of Braga, yeah. you know? There, is, there isn't that clear consensus of what Voyager is, I think, on Voyager. But the plus side of that is it allows the show to be more playful and to kind of, uh, you know, play to one of Star Trek's strengths, which is that Star Trek has always been able to be a different show, you know, from week to week to some extent. I mean, even going back to the original series, you get something like, I don't know, a piece of the action. That is a different kind of show to the Corbomite manoeuvre or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? And that sense that Star Trek is a, a format that is quite versatile, and as much as Voyager in some ways did fall back on certain kind of repetitive tropes and certain kind of ways of using characters that seemed a bit um, unimaginative, it was also capable of 
particularly taking these ideas or taking the kind of how to develop those stories and doing that in quite imaginative ways. Oh, I was going to say, though, is that I think that one of the reasons why Voyager has aged, I think, well, or sort of like why it has become sort of almost reassessed, I think, by certain elements of the fandom is that, and it's kind of interesting in terms of where we are now culturally, because you have a lot of, obviously, Hollywood is increasingly focused on on existing intellectual properties and recycling them and stuff like that. But you have this this interesting dynamic, which is arguably something that like has been part of, say, the Doctor Who fandom going back to the 80s. This idea of trad versus rad, where you have to find when you're calibrating a new franchise or recalibrating existing franchise, you have to find the right balance between familiar and novel novelty, you know, familiarity and novelty. And like, so you have stuff like, say, Star Wars, where it's like, is The Force Awakens too similar to A New Hope? And is The Last Jedi too radical in how it really invents the franchise and you've got this sort of like uncertainty in a lot of how we approach properties and i mean i would argue the same is true of discovery where you have a lot of discussion online about you know whether you know inverted commas is it really star trek the answer is yes because it's owned by cbs and is star trek branded Uh, but you have this discussion about whether or not it fits conceptually with it or whether or not it pushes too far or what it's doing with the franchise and whether that's appropriate in inverted commas and i wonder if like one of the things that and again i don't this i don't mean for this to sound dismissive voyager and i'm worried that it might but it's that thing that you just described it's like voyager is star trek voyager like for a large part of its run is committed to the idea of star trek and i mean you could argue even some of those generic episodes that we mentioned that the episodes like say um you know blink of an eye blink of an eye is is a beautiful metaphor for star trek fandom or for like star trek as a cultural force it's about a society that is shaped by an idea that is utopian and idealistic that inspires us to be better than we are and to reach further and higher than we have before if you want to construct a defense like for not a defense but you want to construct an argument in favor of star trek as a potent cultural force that has legitimate value to it something like blink of an eye comes very makes that argument for it and i think that it's a deeply moving piece of television for that fact um but i think that like is i wonder if part of the appeal of voyager in hindsight and it ironically is probably one of the the issues that existed at time of airing was that like people were like this is very familiar it's very formulaic we've seen all this before it's falling into recurring patterns and while it was on the air that was an issue because people wanted something new and exciting and interesting and i wonder if and i obviously as we discussed voyager was much more new exciting and interesting than you know its reputation would suggest even if it wasn't as as radical as some of the other star trek shows around it but i wonder if now part of the appeal of Voyager on streaming services like Netflix, like like you mentioned, uh, and like I've done it as well. You come home from a hard day of work, you want to watch an episode of Star Trek. What is the most Star Trek-y Star Trek episode that you could watch? It's like, uh, might stick on, you know, might stick on an episode of Voyager because it, it's easy, it's, it's comfortable, it's recognizably Star Trek. It kind of fits the template of what I expect from the franchise to a certain extent. And I, I kind of, I find something interesting in that. I wonder if, like, maybe what was seen as a weakness of the show at the time has become kind of a, a strength or one of the reasons why it is the most watched Star Trek show on Netflix. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, aside from that kind of coziness, which I think comes from the emphasis on this idea of family and the kind of, it is, it does partly come from the kind of nicey niceness of the characters. And I say that in a mildly disparaging way, but I think, you know, there is a lot of the appeal of the show. It is a place that you would like to be and people that you would like to hang out with. There is something kind of, um, quite comfortable 
uh, about that. Was it Seth MacFarlane who described The Next Generation as the best workplace workplace drama in the history of American television? Exactly. And yeah. there's perhaps something to be said for Voyager in that respect as well. And I think there's absolutely a sense that in the same way as a lot of people might say, oh, yes, they, they, they'd like to work for Captain Picard. He seems like a great boss. Janeway seems like a pretty great boss as well. Uh, you, you know, she would, and, and a very, uh, she does as the show com- moves on become increasingly this quite sort of nurturing uh, figure, which may be another reason that people, you know, if you have had a hard day at work or whatever, there is something quite appealing about um, chucking on a Voyager episode. Well, it depends on which which Janeway episode you watch, to be fair. Latent Image uh, is a very different <laughs> sort of Janeway, or nothing human. Well, look, every every Star Trek ca- uh, captain has their has their moments, don't they? <laughs> but, you, you know, for the most part, though, I, I, I'd say there is that kind of, um, there is that cosiness. I think also there is actually a relatively high bar of kind of um well let's say if deep space nine if the if the ceiling on deep space nine is higher the floor is probably potentially can be lower as well maybe at time i mean i mentioned profit and lace i'm not sure that there's anything in voyager and we haven't even talked about threshold in this podcast but i don't think there's really anything in voyager that quite plums the depths the way that that episode does for my money anyway um and I think maybe there is a sort of sense of, yeah, there, there are definitely ropey Voyager episodes, but you know, the ropiest ones, they tend to be a bit kind of forgettable. They tend to be a bit sort of nothingy. Dull. Um, yeah, exactly. Just slightly dull. But even within those episodes, one of the things I found, and I don't know if you found this as well, you know, going back and watching, I mean, because as I say, I was watching Voyager towards the end of that year of watching the whole of Star Trek. So I was pretty, you know, not fed up with Star Trek exactly by that point, but I'd watched an awful lot of it. But what I found was that even the episodes that are not necessarily that brilliant, that are kind of, you know, sort of three starish episodes, um, there is a lot of charm. And often there are moments that, you know, that really work. There are little kind of interplays. There are, you know, a line here or there. There's, I mean, one of the great things about Star Trek, I think, is that, you know, when you do go back and rewatch it, is do you do see these, pick out these smaller elements. And it's not all about the kind of the classics, the big, the ones that stand the test of time, the ones that get mentioned and repeated over and over again, those kind of, um, you know, sort of high stakes episodes, whether it's Living Witness for Voyager or whether it's, I don't know, far beyond the stars the for, the yeah, line, or the visitor yeah. or you, you know these these kind of exceptional episodes there is a lot of pleasure in the kind of you know week by week episode of the week do you know what i mean in the in the, the yeah. kind of okay what what is the anomaly going to be this week or whatever and voyager did those stories you know for the most part very successfully i think yeah i mean i this is interesting because this kind of gets back to to me as somebody writing reviews of voyager and like one of the things that when i took on the project i was very anxious about or very nervous about was the idea that I would run out of things to say about Voyager. I mean, you, you've written books, you know exactly how that feels. There's a worry when you pick a subject of, well, how deep can I go? And it's and, and there's an anxiety around that. And so as a result, I am probably less attuned to the idea of the three-star episode because it's very hard to write about the three-star episode. I would argue like you know, I, I, I've reviewed Enterprise, I've reviewed the first season of The Next Generation, I've reviewed the third season of the original Star Trek, and I would argue the toughest time that I had writing Star Trek reviews was the seventh season of Voyager, and it's not the worst season of Star Trek by any measure. It doesn't have an episode that is as bad as Prophet and Lace, to pick an example, or Spock's Brain, or And the Children Shall Eat, but it, it, 
it's, you know, as somebody who's writing about it, that is mildly frustrating, but I also see the appeal and the comfort of it. I do think that Voyager did have peaks and troughs uh, in its first and in its second season in particular is probably where it hit some of its highest highs and lowest lows but i think you're right that after that it kind of evens out a bit i think that even say in the third season where you have episodes that occasionally veer very far in one direction or the other they don't quite hit the ceiling that deep space nine does or the floor that you know that deep space nine also does (laughs) um and uh you know i kind of i think there is something to be said for that and i think that even you know it's nice when that constant level is a bit higher, as it is, I think, in the fourth season, and perhaps even in the fifth season. But I mean, there is a certain comfort there, even when it kind of when you can feel the show shifting into kind of park as it does in the seventh season, where there's a real sense of, well, let's not screw this up before we land the show at the end of the year. Um, and you know, there is something about watching these characters, about checking in with these characters, you know, on an on a weekly basis, if you're watching it week to week on television, but on a binge basis with Netflix, or even just randomly. Like, you know, this is television. I mean, I really like serialization, long-form storytelling, ambitious narrative structures, but there's always something really cool about knowing that when I pick an episode, I will know exactly where Tom is, or exactly where Tuvok is, or exactly where Kim is. No matter which episode I pick at random, I'll have some idea of who these characters are, what they're doing, what their perspectives are, and what their function is. You know, I don't have to worry about, you know, attenuating myself or sort of like acclimatizing myself or figuring out where the ground lies. I can watch the third episode of the second season and the 25th episode of the fifth season back to back and I can follow them, you know, just as well. And there's something, there is something very soothing and reassuring in that, particularly in a world that is, you know, perhaps not as stable as it was when the show was produced. Absolutely. And and maybe there is an element. I mean, I talked about the kind of nostalgia going back to, particularly with those early seasons, you know, remembering what it was like, what this show was like when it was, you know, first coming out and we were first experiencing it. And as kind of, you know, a young Star Trek fan at the time, the kind of excitement around it. Uh, but there is absolutely that sense of kind of being transported back to, yeah, maybe you're right, to a kind of safer time. And it's interesting, I mean, as much as you were saying earlier, you know, Voyager imagines the kind of future of the Federation is fairly stable, is fairly safe. Obviously, with Discovery, we've got hints that in the third season, they're going to go in a slightly different direction. They're going to go in the direction of that. Um, there was that idea for a series, I think it was called Star Trek Federation, wasn't it? Was this Brian Singer's pitch? I, I think, think so, which yeah. Which probably not aged well in a number of ways. Well, possibly not. But uh, I mean, it sounds like they may be kind of at least adapting some of the idea of that, that kind of um, idea of, you know, empires rising and falling and the Federation kind of being in a state of, of decay or a state of kind of, you know, crumbling in some ways. I never liked the idea of that. To me, that, I mean, as much as people, you know, people say DS9 is not Star Trek. People say Discovery. People say everything's not Star Trek. I don't really care. But to me me there is a slight sense of I, I am slightly anxious whether that's star trek for me but I, you know I, I, i'll kind of wait and see but it, it's an interesting counterpoint i suppose now in 2019 to be looking in that direction that the future being very unsafe being very kind of um uncertain i mean you know think of something like climate change that is kind of uh it, it almost you could see as kind of emblematic of that kind of way of thinking whereas in voyager there is absolutely this sense of the kind of um stability safeness and even to the extent i think you could say that while well, deep space nine was raising the stakes uh in terms of like really um threatening the alpha quadrant threatening earth threatening the federation and so on 
Voyager always felt quite safe. I mean, Voyager could, uh, you know, get through Borg space with barely a scratch. Voyager could kind of, you know, they did have the magic reset button. Anything that went wrong could always kind of be... Could build a dilithium refinery there, like in the middle of the first season. Yeah, they could build their own shuttlecraft when they needed us. (laughs) And by the time they get back, you know, the show conspicuously avoids engaging with anything that's happened really while they've been away. I mean, there is obviously the, the death of the Marquis plays out briefly and we do get that. You In know, extreme risk. Exactly. That very, um, dramatic episode for Bellana uh and, and she sort of stands in for what I suppose we're supposed to imagine that the rest of the Marquis crew would you know the experience they would have but really that's the limit of the extent to which all the huge kind of seismic changes that are going on in Deep Space Nine have any kind of impact on this crew and we don't really see this sense of them coming back and the fact that the the uh, Alpha Quadrant that they come back to after seven years is very different from the one that they left and the kind of geopolitics are very different the the you know situation that Starfleet is in is, is potentially quite different one way or another and we don't really get any of that we do get this kind of cosy safe quality and maybe that is one of the reasons that it makes it very rewatchable kind of episode by episode because you can chuck an episode on you can be sort of taken back to this kind of cuddly warm cozy uh environment of sort of you know as much as the show is supposedly in this dangerous area of space it feels very safe and that's one of the things that is appealing about it. One of the things I wanted to ask you just finally though, Darren, I mean, so you have gone back, you have rewatched all of these episodes, you've gone through the whole lot. I mean, we've talked a lot about how Voyager can be quite predictable, can be quite safe, can be kind of quite stable. Um, what was the thing that most surprised you going back, you know, having seen these episodes before, but going back and kind of looking at them once again, was there anything that kind of jumped out that really wasn't uh, what you were expecting or wasn't how you remembered it? I think I was actually quite surprised at how kind of, I want to phrase this very carefully, but how kind of conservative Voyager was in some respects in that like there's a tendency to think of, of Star Trek as an outwardly liberal show um, with, with strong liberal values, infinite diversity, infinite combinations and stuff like that. And the idea of, you know, obviously multiculturalism in Deep Space Nine, but even like the utopian idealism of Picard and the Enterprise crew in the next generation, where like, you know, their their mission is that they go out and they peacefully explore the universe and they establish diplomatic relationships and they talk through all of their problems. And, and that's the kind of an ideal that you strive towards. What surprised me watching Voyager um, this time around was the weird way in which one of the strange consistent threads that ran through it was a kind of an uncertainty or ambivalence around some of those liberal values um, in a way that I wasn't quite anticipating. I don't mean in the same way that like Deep Space Nine kind of pushed at the limits of the Roddenberry box or kind of like stress tested some of those ideas or introduced elements like Section 31. I, I mean more like a sense of Voyager feeling very anxious and kind of almost paranoid about certain things. And I'm thinking of, for example, I noticed on rewatching it that the show begins and ends with two different slave revolts. Uh, it begins with the Kazon slave revolt um, with the Trabe, and it's obviously very, very anxious about that. And that is rooted in very particular historical circumstances. Um, the Trabe and the Kazon are, are kind of obviously influenced, the, the Kazon sects are influenced by the gangs in Los Angeles, and there's a whole host of uncomfortable sort of racial subtext there around things like, say, the, the you know, the freeing of, of slaves and kind of like the idea of, uh, you know, violence among African, you know, communities or minority communities and the use of them as kind of stand-ins or savages in kind of the, the Western mythos established in Caretaker. And then it comes back, what's weird is that, like, Voyager 
Voyager drops that and then circles back around to it in its seventh season with like holograms, where you have this weird anxiety around the idea of holographic slave revolt. And you see that kind of simmered out a little bit throughout with, say, Revulsion, where you have Dejarin, who's the character played by Leyland Orser, who's one of the, I would argue, Voyager's best guest stars. But it's this weird homicidal slasher movie where a hologram finally has enough. But in the seventh season, you see it with the Herogen, um holograms in the two-parter Flesh and Blood, but also, uh, I think it's the Locarum um, in, in Body and Soul, but even among Earth, on Earth, with the EMH uh, holograms, who've been consigned to menial dilithium mining in Author Author, which are almost radicalized by kind of photons be free, which is a weird episode because it seems to suggest that like Starfleet and the Federation have learned absolutely nothing in like the four, the what, 12 years at that point, uh, since The Measure of a Man which kind of touched on the same issues. There's a sense that, like, Picard's nightmare in uh, Measure of a Man was the idea of a society that was built on easily replicated individuals who could be used to do menial tasks that were beneath organic human beings. And what you see in Author Author is that fear literalized, but not in a way that the show is... I I don't think the show is willing to say this is a bad thing about the Federation and somebody needs to really fix this. There's a kind of an ambivalence about it where there's a sense that they might rise up in the future. And partly because the episode is is slightly knockabout. I mean, it, it kind of doesn't really take the issue seriously. I think that's one of the one of the yeah. big problems for me with author author is that it doesn't really know whether it's a serious, you know, is it a reprise of The Measure of a Man or is it a kind of another one in this long line of kind of fake out Voyager episodes where it's all just about everyone acting out of character and kind like of worst case scenario. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, is it a kind of or almost kind of a version of the mirror universe in a sense, a kind of alternate uh, version of things. And I think that does, I, I think that episode raises a lot of slightly uncomfortable questions, which obviously have never been uh, resolved. And who knows whether the Picard's here. I mean, you know, you mentioned Picard in Measure of a Man. I mean, he's got, Jerry Ryan uh, coming back. He's there. There have been talks that uh, Robert Picardo might be coming into the Picard series in a future season. I mean, I think it would be interesting if, the, in some ways, As a holographic Che Guevara. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows? Well, who knows what's what's happened in those intervening decades? Um, and interesting, actually. I mean, you know, we're talking about the Trabe and the and the Kazon, and I hadn't remembered until I went back and watched it recently that in alliances. Uh, it's 30 years since the, the trade have been sort of overthrown by the Kazon. And there's this sort of interesting question. And I was thinking about it because I know, I mean, you know, we sort of touched on that, but I certainly would recommend anyone who's interested to go and, you know, read your, your review of that episode. Cause I do think it's an interesting episode and it is problematic in various ways. But I think part of the discussion that goes on in that episode alliances is around this idea of, well, uh, yes. So these people did this awful thing that was in the past. Janeway says, you know, we like to believe that people can kind of, um, and obviously she's wrong because, <laughs> because, because they, they, de- they haven't changed in this situation. They seem like complete bastards, but at least there is that sort of sense of, you know, uh, how do you deal with a situation that, how do you deal with, you, you know, I mean, a country like Britain that used, you know, used to have an empire and, um, you know, most of the European countries had uh, empires that behaved appallingly and so on. And you, you know, what, what would an alien, uh, like Janeway, in a sense, you know, coming to Earth, kind of make of these things. And Star Trek, of course, I mean, the Federation quite happily uh, signed a treaty with the Cardassians, who had been 
up to you know far worse than the trade far more recently if you know what i mean so in some ways as much as you could say that's completely out of character for janeway it's completely out of uh, not out of character for janeway but it's out, out of kind of federation it's out of character for star trek in a sense and that was kind of one of the issues with that episode equally the federation you know there is an element of kind of real politic in it there is a kind of element of you know they do sometimes make dubious kind of political uh decisions as you know people may or may not do in the real world as well but i suppose there is also that sort of interesting question in that episode of or at least circling you know the question that's sort of interesting question is touched on in that episode of sort of how many years pass before you um are willing to you know question i i mean you know obviously Germany in the 1990s was a very different place from Germany in the 1940s. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and equally, um, with a lot of societies in, in that kind of length of time, several decades. Um, and, and the, the irony though is that like Voyager was asking this question while also making the case in like remember and memorial and stuff like that, that you should never forget. Uh, which is an interesting, I think it, it suggests a sort of a blind spot with the show, I would argue. Um, and it is kind of interesting in, in that sense that you get, and Voyager has this sort of, and I think we sort of alluded to this when we talked on the, on the last podcast two years ago about like this idea of nostalgia that runs through it. Cause this is the first Star Trek show that's not actually about exploring or pushing outwards. You know, you could argue Deep Space Nine was a show about sitting on the edge of the frontier and having the frontier come to you. But Voyager is explicitly about retreating from the frontier. It's explicitly about retreating from the unknown and going back. And you see that recurring throughout the show's run. So you see like a wariness around things. I would argue that stuff like say displaced is an awkward metaphor for immigration in which the crew are replaced or displaced one one at a time by new arrivals on the ship who gradually take it over, which has certain uncomfortable connotations when you look at the context of what was happening in Californian politics in the 90s, where you had stuff around immigration and Mexican immigrants in particular. Um, and some of that has kind of like obviously become a much more pertinent and sort of like relevant sort of political debate today as well. But even say things like, say, the, the treatment of refugees in Day of Honor, where they're presented as like uh, scavengers who are out to take advantage of the system and who won't take any charity that's offered. They'll insist on taking more and more and more from you, which is a, a really, really uncomfortable um, kind of like metaphor for a show for personally for me for a show like star trek to be pushing but even things like if, if you want to go kind of even even further in that direction things like say the episode friendship one um which is the episode where joe Kerry dies so the the episode there is about this attempt at first contact the federation makes with a society on the edge of the delta quadrant and what happens is the probe that lands is weaponized and leads to nuclear winter and nuclear fallout and huge devastation on this planet the the you know an away team is sent down joe Kerry, who has been absent for six years um joins the away mission just in time to get killed before he gets to go home i kind of love how joe Kerry is used as a marker of the first season he's used in time travel episodes like relativity and like fury as a way for voyager to say see the show has changed. We don't have Joe Carey anymore, <laughs> um, which is kind of like a nice marker of progress. Um, but like he gets killed off in Friendship One and the episode ends with Janeway and Chakotay in his quarters studying a ship in a bottle and having this conversation about whether or not exploration is worth the risk. And Janeway seems to come down on the side that like the idea of exploration and the idea of reaching out in the cosmos and the idea of first contact is so risky that it doesn't 
justify any price that would have to be paid for it. Any price that's paid for it is too high. And that's interesting to me. That was very interesting to me rewatching Voyager because it seemed like it was a Star Trek show that was much more anxious about the idea of kind of first contact and multiculturalism and reaching out and kind of embracing other ideas and other cultures than the next generation had been or than Deep Space Nine had been. And I mean, you, you could make an argument if you wanted that maybe this was tying into the whole, you know, Battlestar Galactica element of it. But I don't think it was because like the Voyager was never particularly badly damaged. Voyager was never, there was never a reason. You never got a sense the Voyager needed to be particularly cautious or particularly cynical or particularly kind of like calculated in its dealings with alien species. The show, you know, as you point out, as we point out, like one of the appeals of the Voyager is the show always feels comfortable. It always feels safe and warm. So there's not really a sense of like, that cynicism being like earned in terms of plot that that kind of that was something that really struck me on rewatching Voyager and it's something I've been turning over in my head because there's a similar cynicism that carries over to Enterprise uh, and you can see it in episodes like Dawn in the second season and even like Cogenitor in the second season of Enterprise where there's a real sense of like the crew asking why are we doing this is what we're doing causing more harm than good should we just retreat into ourselves and like lock ourselves away from the world and would that be better for everybody ourselves included and you can contextualize that as a kind of a response to to the horrors of 9-11 the war on terror and like the show grappling with the idea that star trek's utopianism maybe doesn't reflect the way that a lot of people felt at that moment in time culturally with enter with Voyager, it, it's different. I have difficulty kind of like squaring that circle. It is something that I've been thinking about a lot. I thought about it a lot as I was writing the reviews, and I, I've been thinking about it a lot uh, kind of afterwards and trying to make sense of it. Well, I would say, I mean, those reviews are certainly uh, the place to go for any listeners who want to, you know, um, encounter more of your thoughts. And I mean, I've been describing them as, as we've been describing those reviews. They are basically uh, essays, really. I mean, I, I, I think we should give, you know, when I, I said at the beginning uh, what an enormous undertaking it had been. How many words did you calculate your total output on Voyager was in all told? I don't actually don't have that figure to hand, but say about 4,000, 5,000 words per episode and uh, 178 episodes plus seven season wrap-ups. So the bone's about 900,000 words, wow. uh, roughly. Which, just to put it in context, is about nine, you know, decent length books uh, f- from my perspective, which is more than I've written in my career. Uh, so, <laughs> you know. To be fair, I am my own editor, so I'm allowed. I know, to- I know. <laughs> so, I- so I'm allowed to go off on tangents you would never get away That's with. True. Like, um, you know, 4,000 words on Concerning Flight, which is a masterpiece. I love Concerning Flight. But 4,000 words on Concerning Flight about whether or not, is Voyager the Doctor Who of the Star Trek universe? Darren discusses for 3,000 words. Well, so so I guess to put it another way, um, this is not necessarily something that anyone's going to sit down and and read. I don't know, maybe they are, but read from beginning to end. But, you know... (laughs) Every episode of Voyager is there now. Darren always has uh, insightful things to say about it. And they're always, um, you know, whenever I have gone and, and, and looked at one of your reviews, there's always something interesting in there and a good kind of um, starting point for a, a conversation and debate. Worst case scenario, they're a great sleep aid. 
<laughs> no, I wouldn't, Cure say, for that. Insomnia. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you on social media um, and uh, give their own thoughts on, on some of those Voyager episodes or, you know, maybe take issue with something you've said or, or, or chip in with their own views, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, unless they're the kind of person who doesn't think that Concerning Flight is a masterpiece, um, you can engage with me online. I'm on, at Darren Oscar on Twitter. Um, I'm also at my own blog, which is the movie blog, but with a zero instead of an O in the word movie. But just Google Darren Mooney Voyager Reviews and you'll find it. I do try to engage with the comments as much as I can. I don't always reply in real time. So there may be a gap of a couple of weeks, uh, but I do try to engage with every comment that's left there. There's some fun discussions actually in, in the comment sections under the reviews. I would argue that they are often as worth reading as the reviews themselves, if not more in some cases. Um, I've been very, very lucky with the people who've engaged with me on, on this project because a lot of them actually are significantly smarter than I am and have sort of brought new perspectives that I find kind of interesting to pick out and discuss. Um, I also co-host a podcast called The 250 uh, with my great friend Andrew Quinn, uh, where we go through the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time and sometimes the bottom 100 as well. Well, thank you, Darren, for joining me um, again. We'll have to have you back on, you know, hopefully it won't be another two years uh, be- before we talk on Mike again. And who knows, maybe it won't be about Voyager next time. It'll be about something else. But um, always a pleasure. And thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, a huge pleasure. And actually really, really glad to kind of talk about this. Um, yeah, I, I and I'm wary in case it sounds like I've been overly negative about Voyager. I, I do. You don't write 900,000 words about a show that you hate, uh, would be what I say. I think that it, it's a wonderful piece of television. It's I. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it uh, this time around, even if I did have some issues. Always worth remembering. Absolutely. Well, um, looking back on Voyager is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. To the journey! I was going to ask this a little bit later, but while we're talking about the Doctor and Seven, let's talk about Voyager relationships. Mm. Are you... We'll do a quick quick thumbs up, thumbs down. Doctor Seven, thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs down. Okay, interesting. How about Chakotay Janeway? Um... I like the idea, the, but I also don't... The coin is on its edge. Yeah, but I also don't like the idea of the captain and the first officer being in a relationship. The ready room. I mean, I said, okay, sooner, back to all those people for five or six days before. I thought, oh, God, they come up with another thing? They come up with another thing. I remember when Go Big Red was just the big, oh, simple yeah. thing. Okay. Earl Grey. Uh, they through, want we, us you know, to be with them. The oh, you, yes. you, guys, you guys are just taking it to the extreme now. Just, <laughs> I... No. no, no. Joe and I are right. <laughs> Kimberly and I are right. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Why are you wanting to podcast and to be on The Edge? You had no choice. Yeah, so, uh, why Oops, do I... You get that me. feeling? That's your arm. I love the sound of my own Riding voice. <laughs> no, um, so... And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps 
and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right.